VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, December the 5th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Uh, producer, David Williams. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone, give us a shout in the queue and on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 86. 26. So first real snowfall of the season here in the St. John's metro area. And of course, predictably, driving to work this morning, seeing people that just simply do not clear off their vehicle. There was one little compact car that was alongside of me on McDonald Drive. Basically had a little porthole scraped with, I guess, their glove or something to peer out through the windshield. So I shouldn't giggle because it's pretty unsafe. Okay. In the world of sports, the soccer world says goodbye to one of the greatest of all time, Canada's national women's team member, Christine Sinclair. I mean, to say she's had an outstanding career is just a real bold understatement. Here's a couple of numbers to consider. So she's the leading all-time goal scorer in international football across both men and women. She scored 190 goals for her country in 328 matches. Six more goals than Abby Wambach of the United States, who's in second place amongst men and women. Uh, so there's third, uh, pardon me, 55 assists. So not only is she a goal-scoring machine, she leads the Canada's women's national team history with assists with 55. She's been 14 times Canadian Player of the Year, including the Player of the Decade for the 2010 to 2019 time frame. She's represented five different clubs uh, professionally. She scored 71 goals for Portland Thorns as a professional player. She's played in six World Cups. Amazing stuff. Scored 12 goals at the Olympics. She's got three Olympic medals, including a gold, uh, which they captured back in 2020 in Tokyo. So, I mean, what an outstanding career. So tonight, in front of her hometown fans in British Columbia, the last friendly against Australia. So, Christine Sinclair has been been a huge component for Canadian soccer for 23 seasons on the national team. She made her debut at the age of 16. Amazing stuff. All right. I got ahead of myself yesterday talking about the Hughes boys. So Quinn, Jack, and Luke Hughes, who all play in the National Hockey League. I thought the game was last night where the Devils played the Canucks, but it is tonight. So it's the first time, curiously, that the three boys have ever been involved in an organized hockey game at the same time. So they'll hit the ice tonight to satisfy a dream. It's actually happened nine times in history. The last time, the Stahl boys, Eric and Mark playing for Florida and Jordan playing for Carolina, were on the ice in the same game. And on the world of uh, brothers playing against each other, on this date in 1968, Boston Bruins Hall of Fame center Phil Esposito scored twice against his brother Tony, who was making his NHL debut start against the Montreal, for, uh, pardon me, playing for the Montreal Canadiens. Espo's two goals were good enough for a 2-2 tie. All right, neck guards. We all know the tragic story regarding former Pittsburgh Penguin player Adam Johnson back in October where his neck was slashed by an opponent's skate, and he died as a result. So now the WIHF, the International Ice Hockey Federation, has made it mandatory for neck guards to be worn at the World Juniors and at the Men's Under-18 World Championships. No decision yet for the senior uh, competitions. So... Many of the junior players, this won't be anything new to them. In the Quebec League and the Ontario League, they've been wearing neck guys for a long time. Recently mandated for uh, the WHL, but they're going to be worn by all participants in the World Juniors and the under-18s. Quick check-in on the Para Cup being played in New Brunswick. Liam Hickey playing again for Canada. 3 nothing shutout victory yesterday against Chechia. Uh, they got the U.S. today, their arch nemesis. So they've scored seven goals now so far in the tournament. Captain Tyler McGregor has six points. He's been on every goal but one. Okay. 
All right, let's talk a bit of food. You know, all of the issues regarding food inflation, it's hard to believe or feel that we've got any real relief. You know, food inflation stands at 5.4% over a year ago. Overall inflation, 3.1%. I know people aren't feeling any of these uh, reductions in inflationary pressure, but one of the things that absolutely is infuriating is the so-called shrinkflation. So now there's been some tests done on a couple of products bought off the grocery store shelves to find out that what's inside does not match the weight described on the package itself. Okay, so multi-grain Cheerios, and of course they're made by General Mills, an American manufacturer. So it says on the front that the twin pack is labeled as weighing 1.01 kilograms. When they actually weighed it out, the package weighed about 503 grams. I mean, come on. So General Mills defends himself in a very flimsy fashion, but here are the rules according to the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. Manufacturers must, po must post the accurate weight on the label of prepackaged food. When posting totals for multi-packs, the packaging must make it clear how many items make up that weight, something that both the multi-grain and Honey Nut Jumbo twin packs do not do. So General Mills says that it's an isolated incident and they're working towards fixing it. Then they go to talk about a couple of chip products bought at Loblaws. Okay, one was a no-name onion ring chip, and it said that it had 200 grams when weighed 132 grams. Then there's a bag of no-name Loblaws chips, potato chips, 200-gram bag, the weight inside, 103 grams. So, again, companies are saying this are, these are isolated incidents, but I wonder. You know, we can do the price comparisons, and the products have shrunk while the price has either stayed the same or increased but not even getting the amount of content that you were told or described on the package itself is pretty pathetic stuff, right? So, and I know I don't do it. We'll go home and weigh the product out, but people who were looking at their product saying, is there really 200 grams of chips? Because you open up a bag of chips, it feels like it's 90% air. So anyway, the, uh, Dave says he feels a bag of chips. So anyway, the shrinkflation is extremely misleading, patently unfair. On that front, so testifying once again in front of the Parliamentary Committee regarding the food prices, uh, Michael Medlin, he's the CEO of Empire Company, they own Sobeys and other grocery store chains, he's made quite the declaration. Okay, he says in the Canadian grocery retail sector, it's the most competitive in the world. Well, that's not what the Competition Bureau says, quite clearly. Between Loblaws, Metro, Empire, Walmart, and Costco, they represent 80% of the retail sector for groceries. Now, of course, inside some of their profitability are things beyond food products, you know, selling makeup and medicines and clothes and the rest of it. But the most competitive landscape in the world flies in the face of the people who actually look at the competitive nature of Canadian business, notably the competition watchdog, that is the competition bureau. But Michael Medlin would like you to believe that it's the most competitive grocery retail sector in the world, he says. So, yeah, between that and that concept of shrinkflation and patently misleading, unfair labeling, not great. Okay, you want to take it on. Let's go. This is a pretty serious story. I kind of forgot that this had happened. So it was based on an incident that happened back in 2018. So an RCMP officer now has been convicted of careless use of a firearm and pointing a firearm at a person. So Constable Michael Wheeler, he pulled, he was wrestling with this woman who he was involved with. He showed up at a social gathering in uniform where they were drinking. And so he was wrestling with the woman he was in some sort of relationship with on the couch. And then he pulled out his gun, pressed it against her face, and then stood up and pointed it at her. So now that he's been convicted of that crime, that's pretty serious stuff. You know, we've, you know, we talk about 
vetting and the type of people that make up law enforcement agencies, but that's a pretty serious crime to be convicted of. And looking for more details, and it's not going to happen overnight, as to the circumstances surrounding the fact that a 35-year-old inmate at HMP has died. Second death since August. So we don't have any details about that death back in August either. So his name is Seamus Flynn. And in the news story, they talk about the crimes he's been convicted of and other charges that he has facing. Then other inmates talking about they don't have access to timely medical care. And so he said, the person that I heard interviewed said, everyone in the penitentiary is sick, whether it be because of black mold or the inability to get out for a bit of fresh air or what have you. But the government says there are indeed medical teams on site to offer said care, and they are composed of registered nurses, licensed practical nurses, nurse practitioners, pastoral care clinicians, social workers, a clinical pharmacist, a clinical psychologist, and psychiatrists. That is a very comprehensive team, but I guess the big question would be what kind of access do the inmates have to these healthcare providers? But a second death since August, and we know there's been a number of deaths in the province's penitentiaries or prisons over the course of the last number of years, but an investigation continues into that particular sad story. Okay, where's this one I wanted to talk about? All right. The story about this fellow who's got a history of driving while drunk, and it's a long, tattered history. Now, with even though there's a lifetime ban prohibiting this fellow named, what's his name? I got it right here. Uh, George Malcolm Whalen. So a lifetime ban based on an incident where he struck and killed an 83-year-old woman named Jane Nook while she was driving her car on the highway. Or she was a passenger, I believe, as a matter of fact. He was given a seven-year sentence. Driving privileges revoked for life. He's been caught driving many times. And now, this fella, we don't know the circumstances of the level of intoxication necessarily, but he struck a teenager uh, in Carbonier who was riding his dirt bike home. So it gets even worse. He strikes the kid, breaks his leg, breaks the kid's leg, gets out, and says to him, get up, you're all right, and then gets in his car and drives away. So we just left the kid on the side of the road, not knowing exactly the, the extent of the injuries, and it could be absolutely the case of leaving the kid to potentially perish. Who knew what the injuries were? And so he's been charged with a variety of things again. Failure to stop after an accident, causing bodily harm, operation of motor vehicle while prohibited. And the parents of the teenager with the broken leg are asking the obvious questions. How does this happen? How is this guy continually uh, posing such a risk to the general public? The quote, I don't want this man on the street anymore, says Chad Parsons, the parent of the young fella. He's got to go. He's going to kill another person if this doesn't change. If we don't get him locked up, he's going to do it again. Hard to argue, given the man's history behind the wheel. So that's a pretty sad story. Then it gets a little bit more complicated, where the young fella's dirt bike wasn't registered for on-road use. I don't know how that's going to factor into any of this conversation. But ultimately, the most important part of the story is this fellow, with a long, terrible history, did, struck the kid, got out and told him to get up. You're all right. And then got in the car and drove away. All right. So that's that one. The deadline has come and gone regarding folks who have come forward to file a claim looking for compensation if they were abused physically or sexually by people under the watch of the Archdiocese of St. John's, which includes, of course, the Christian Brothers at Mount Cashel. The final tally, 369. 
Back in December of 2021, the Archdiocese filed for creditor protection. We know the story regarding selling off of the church properties and the schools to the provincial government. There's about $45 million set aside now for these claims. There's going to be an independent evaluation about who gets how much money inside their claim. But just think about the numbers. If we're talking about dates between the 40s and the 80s, 369 people have put forward a claim that they were physically or sexually abused. That's a horribly large number. Now, Jeff Budden, the lawyer representing them, he doesn't even know if it's a high number, but here's the quote. It was a high number, but I can't say for me personally if it was shocking or even an unanticipated number. To me, it's absolutely shocking. We knew there was going to be in the hundreds, but 369 is the final tally. And, of course, for the faithful and the parishioners of the various churches that have now been sold, it's galling. And for all of us, it's infuriating that there was so little to nothing done to protect these children. I mean, the story is just horrific, but 369 is the final tally for folks who are going to see their claim adjudicated and evaluated. Oh, and on that note regarding drinking, it was on this date in 1933. Prohibition, which made alcohol illegal in the United States, was overturned. All it really did was lead to the speakeasy and organized crime, so it didn't accomplish anything. Okay, now this story here, it's a little bit murky. We're still trying to figure it out somewhat. And it was written by Reuters, published out in Winnipeg, regarding World Energy GH2's proposal here on the port of port Peninsula. So I haven't heard from the company yet. There's nothing on their social media presence and or their website about the fact that this reporter is saying there's going to be a one-year delay in production because they're waiting for their European customers to develop the special infrastructure required to handle the product eventually. Now, we were told, based on the non-binding uh, MOU that was signed in 2022, that the project, pardon me, the proponent was planning to ship their green hydrogen to Germany starting in 2025. Now they're saying, and this is a direct quote coming from a fellow named Sean, Leet, who's World Energy's uh, managing director. The off-takers are not going to be ready to accept the product within 2025. Actually, not until 2027. Then they're also talking about some of the things that have to be secured before they can make final investment decisions. It really felt like they were far more prepared on both sides of the Atlantic to have this, you know, on the initial schedule. So... The buyer commitments hinge on the Canadian government finalizing details of a tax credit for up to 40% of the capital cost of building these hydrogen plants. So, of course, still requires environmental approval and need the government to come forward with that 40%. Really does speak to, you know, the price point that green hydrogen comes in, uh, energy loss through transport, what it's going to mean on the other end. But the Germans, nor anybody else in the European market, is at this moment in time able to receive the product and for the so-called off-taker infrastructure that's going to be required to move forward with the proposal. So, you know, there was the concept of who wants to get there first, right? You know, the, how the industry it is in its infancy, and so it looks like everyone fuels in Nova Scotia is going to be the first game in town. They think they're going to be in production in 2025. Their facility is going to produce uh, 1 million metric tons annually of ammonia, and of course that's the practical form of transporting this green hydrogen. So that's Everwind. They haven't told us exactly what the project capital budget is, but they think they've got firm buyer agreements for the first half of 2020 
2024, and they're moving forward. Now, the federal government loaned Everwind some $125 million to build that particular project, still require final approval of the wind farms, even though their hydrogen plant has already received the environmental approval. So we knew the companies here. Everwind, World Energy GH2, ABO, and Exploits Valley Renewal add in pattern energy out of the Port of Argentia. You wonder what the market looks like. You know, I'm told by people who are all in on this concept of this transitional fuel that the market is growing exponentially and so consequently first out of the gate might not be the biggest deal of all time but it looks like there's a significant delay while they make their final investment decision because unless the market is secure and unless the government comes forward with 40%, which is a huge subsidy, then they're probably not going to be able to attract the financing required to build a $12 billion proposal in three phases on the Port of Port Peninsula here, which they are planning on power production of 250,000 metric tons per year of hydrogen. So maybe some stalls on the business side and on the end buyer side when it comes to this particular project, because people really lean heavy on the fact that there was an agreement signed, but of course a non-binding MOU is basically an agreement to work towards the possibility of a final power purchase agreement or contract. So anyway, still trying to figure that one out a little clearer. We had a call yesterday from a gentleman who said that he's a retired veteran and he's got the tools and the expertise and the will to help build some solutions for housing the folks at 10 City. So again, we've had three or four people yesterday after that call connect and say they're willing to do the exact same. There are a couple of people that are working towards a project or a program that is going to see this horsepower uh, taken advantage of to build something for them to be housed in. I will put this out there. Is, you know, we heard from uh, Minister John Abbott this morning on the VOC Morning Show. I don't know if it's an understanding of the immediate, immediacy of concern, and there have been, you know, visitors at Tent City, not only locals who are willing to donate and to try to be part of the solution, but harm reduction teams and what have you. I think there should be and needs to be more interaction there. And we don't really know if there's been a careful consideration of some real available short-term solutions. But in the world of emergency shelters, you know, the gathering place is about a five-minute walk from the Colonial Building. And at one point some while back, they were turning people away. They were over capacity. But they've had vacancies the last few nights. So are the folks at Tent City worried about any shelter surroundings? We've heard the stories. You know, if you're trying to kick the drug habit and there's drug use in place and or violence or threats of sexual violence or solicitation or what have you. But the vacancies are there. I, you know, it'd be, un it'd be nice to understand exactly why they're not being taken advantage of because, look, last night lying in bed and I could see the snow falling through the window. I'm thinking, man, oh, man, how are we going to settle or solve this particular issue because it's pretty out of control. Uh, last couple of quick ones before we get to you. Apparently, some real problems for the district association representing the PCs down at Conception Bay, East Bell Island, and the selection of their candidate for the pending by-election of Tina Neri. So the accusation is that Tony Wakem, the new leader, has been too involved. Tina Neri was part of his leadership campaign. He spoke to the fact that Tina Neri would be a top quality MHA in the future. But the district association said the way that it worked fell outside the protocols that are normal. So the letter and some of the quotes offered are really quite scathing. But the party itself says there was a fair and open uh, nomination process that ran from November 21st to the 24th. But the contradictory nature of what the 
the party says versus what the district association says is something else. The PCs have held that seat for about 20 years. And, you know, the real key in campaign readiness and getting out the vote does indeed lie not only with the team surrounding one candidate or another, but the members of the district associations. If you get it right on the ground, you have a far better chance, regardless of who the candidate is necessarily, regardless of the red book or the blue book or the orange book that's put forward, because the key on election day is getting people to the polls, and that's an effort put forward in large part by district association members. So that is an interesting one. We'll see where that goes. All right, I want to say congratulations to Alex Taylor. Alex has called the show many times in the past to promote some of his uh, ongoing fundraising efforts and another great outcome at his fourth annual Merry and Bright Christmas fundraiser, which took place at St. Mary's Church. Proceeds from that event go to Bridges to Hope, and they wrote a check to that organization for $1,610. So the navigators were there, some Ukrainian artists, and of course, spearheaded by teenager Alex Taylor. Congratulations to Alex. He's 15 years of age. All right, Ron. Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. If something that I mention is of uh, piques your interest and you'd like to pro- provide your opinion on it, let's do it. If there's another topic that you think is more important to talk about, let's do that as well right after this. Don't go away. A couple of really quick ones before we get to the call callers. So if you are somewhere between Mobile up the southern shore and St. John's, and yesterday between 5 and 5.30, a gentleman named uh, Bill, he lost his uh, fat boy mountain bike. It bounced off the carrier, the name and phone number are engraved on the handlebars, or pardon me, on the crossbar. So if you picked up that fat boy bike, can you please give Bill a call? The number scratched right in to the frame itself. So we'll get that one out there. And obviously the folks at World Energy GH2 are listening. I made mention of the fact that there was a reported delay in Reuters. And here's what the statement from World Energy GH2 says. Despite news reports of a one-year delay, the project has not been delayed. It expects to sign off-take agreements and receive regulatory approval to proceed with development in early 2024 as planned. Off-takers have indicated that the physical infrastructure for receiving renewable energy via green ammonia in European markets will not be in place until late 2026, at the earliest. Off-take timelines have been misinterpreted as a project delay. I'm going to have to read that a couple of times alongside with some of the direct quotes from their managing director to try to square that circle. But anywho, let's go to line number three and begin the show with the CEO of Food First NL. That's Josh Schmee. Good morning, Josh. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great this morning. Thanks. How about yourself? I'm all right. So let's look at the most recent report on Canadian food insecurity for 2022. And of course, let's start with our own numbers here in this province. Yeah, so unfortunately, it's not great news. Um, uh, Right now, we're looking at, this is 2022 numbers, 22.9% of households in this province are food insecure, and that is unfortunately now the highest rate of any of the provinces in Canada. How are we measuring what constitutes food insecure? Yeah, that's a good question. So that number rolls three things together, right? So you've got marginal food insecurity, they call it, which is you're basically you're worried where your next meal is going to come from, say. Uh, moderate food insecurity, you're starting to make compromises in what you're eating and how much you're, you're eating. And then you get to severe food insecurity, and that would be looking like what you're picturing in your mind about going hungry. You know, people who are just uh, skipping entire meals and, and, and really short on, on calories. 
calories. And so you roll those three numbers together into that 22% uh, because it's really easy to move from one category to another, right? If you're marginally food insecure today, you're one car repair away from being moderate or severe food insecure, right? So we consider them together, but yeah, so about 6% of people in this province are severely food insecure, to put that in perspective, another 10% or so moderate, another 6.8 marginal. How does that compare to 2021? Uh, it's jumped a fair bit, which is no surprise. So in 2021, it was 17.8%, and it's gone up to almost 23. Uh, and I think like anyone who has bought food uh, in the last two years would understand what's driving that, right? Is that f- uh, food prices continue to shoot up super fast, far faster than people are making gains on, on their wages or on, on other sources of income. And so you know, people just have, uh, you know, can't afford the food that they used to afford before. And we're, we're seeing that, obviously, that's impacting things across across society in so many different ways. It kind of flies in the face of some of the numbers that we get quarterly regarding overall inflation and food inflation. They're telling us that food inflation now at 5.4% compared to a year ago, which the numbers are coming down, but it's not being reflected in the food security numbers. If we look across the country, 17.8 households in 10 provinces experienced food insecurity in the previous 12 months. That's up from 15.9 a year prior. So while we're told that food inflationary pressures are easing, the numbers of food insecure are growing that's a contradiction that's hard to square it is really hard to square. So I think there's there's a couple of things going on here, right? And there's I think there is a lot of research happening right now because one thing we're seeing across the board in Canada is that our overall poverty rate has been going down, but our food insecurity rate is going up. Uh, so there's a couple of things that folks think are probably happening. One is just that the threshold, you know, what we're setting as the poverty line might not make sense anymore, right? And that, that people even living above it are, are really often food insecure. The other thing is, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of differences. Not The poverty rate measures what you earn in a year, but it doesn't measure how much wealth you and your family have. So you might be earning, say, 30 grand, uh, but you have a few relatives who are doing okay and they can help you out. Your life looks a lot different than someone who's earning 30 grand and ha- doesn't have that same community support network. And so I, I think there's, there's a lot of complexity here on why this is happening. The other thing is those national numbers on uh, food prices inflation don't always capture what people are seeing on the ground. So like here in this province, for example, when they updated the what's called the nutritious food basket, right? It's our provincial measure of food prices. It's based on people actually going to stores and checking things. The, the food price inflation is far higher than those national numbers. So the, the lowest was in, in St. John's. It was almost 10 percent in 22, uh, up to 18 percent in northern Labrador, right? And so I think that's the other piece is that those national National numbers aren't always reflecting the reality on the ground in some regions, and, and there's probably some complicated reasons for that that are that are maybe even above my pay grade. But that's part of what's going on for sure. Yeah, and the numbers of children that make that list is really quite something. I think it's, it's one wild. in four live in a food insecure household. Food bank yeah. usage in this province: uh, a third of the patrons are children, and children unfortunately only represent 20% of the population. So that number is majorly concerned. It's a major concern because we know also, obviously, that plays out across your whole life, right? If you're going hungry when you're a kid, uh, you know, you that disrupts... Uh, 
everything. It disrupts your education. It disrupts your social development. It's something that's going to going to be playing out through your whole life. And if you want to be kind of cold about it, it's also something that is going to cost the system over time, right? Because the you know for those the dollars that aren't being spent to buy you food now are going to get spent on healthcare and on other social supports for you later, right? So it's it's really having. I mean, in general, this is all penny wise, pound foolish stuff, right? Because it would be way cheaper to <laughs> to solve for food insecurity than it would be to solve for all the consequences of it, right? And that's especially true for, for kids because we know that that impact is huge. In the health accord itself, you know, we'll have to, I think we should rightfully focus in on the social determinants of health. The documentation and the research done on food insecurity, what that means for interaction with the healthcare system, development of chronic conditions, your mental well-being, your overall physical health, it's as clear as day. And yet we talk, you know, we kind of skirt around the edges here. And as I've said repeatedly, the most expensive two things in this country are being in the hospital or being in the penitentiary. And if, if you're food insecure, the likelihood of you being in the hospital or having a chronic condition that requires ongoing, possibly lifelong assistance is just clear and it's relevant. And yet we just can't figure out how to address it as opposed to just, you know, kicking the can around the sides of the issue. Yeah, I mean, I think we know how to address it. Uh, you know, uh, we know, that, to your point, like the evidence is really clear. This is not an issue where the problem is that we don't know what the problem is or how to solve it. We do. You know, we know what the problem is. We know how to fix it. It's primarily around getting more money in the pockets who have the least. Uh, you know, like you could, that's not the only answer. That's not everything about food insecurity. But there's no real point in having the debate until you've tried that, because that's the thing we know works. And so I think it's it's more a question of political will than it is understanding of the issue at this point. Like, I, I don't think you could find a single politician now who is really unaware of this issue in, in a pretty meaningful way. They're hearing it all the time from, from their constituents and from organizations like mine. It's just a question of, uh, you know, making the tough decision to, <laughs> which shouldn't be a tough decision, to solve it, right? And, and, and that's, you know, that's different than some other issues, right? Like, I think when we talk about, say, the housing crisis, there, there's a lot of complicated long-term things that need to get put together to solve it. It's not something that's easy to solve overnight. You could solve food insecurity largely tomorrow, right? It's a very different policy problem. And I think we don't recognize that enough. And I think part of it is also that it's sometimes hard for people to believe that we could solve a problem like this. You know what I mean? People almost have this like religious belief that there's always going to be poverty and hunger with us, which there doesn't have to be. It's, it's not that complex. As usual, Josh, I appreciate uh, you making time for the program. Anything else before we say goodbye this morning? I just, I think, you know, I do want to remind people, given the season, right, like uh, right now, uh, it's not an adequate response, but the response that we have is a lot dependent on food banks, meal programs, on community charity. And, and like, this is something I know people are thinking about this time of year. So I guess... You know, I'd urge people, if you can give, give. Those folks are under a ton of pressure right now. Uh, they're all seeing huge increases in demand. So give what you can. And every time you give, please reach out to your MHA and your MP and, and tell them uh, to solve this because they can. Thanks a lot for this, Josh. Stay in touch. Yep. Thanks, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, Food First and LCEO, Josh Me. Okay. Just in reference to a note on social media. And look, I try to understand the issue you know like you were just talking food but he also mentioned housing and so it's good morning for mark he says residents he's spoken with at 10 city don't want to go to emergency shelter they've been available at times when shelters aren't full they want safe affordable long-term housing that's the trick though right that is the key he also goes on to say that nobody that is part of the 10 city 
group has been invited to be uh, part of the task force. But the road between today and safe, affordable, long-term housing is not an easy one, and it's not a short one. You know, it could indeed take some time here for the exact thing that people want, safe, affordable, long-term housing. My question is, and it's not saying that, hey, what's your problem? How come you don't move from your tent to an emergency shelter? Because we've seen some of the stories coming from the shelters and the unsafe conditions and a variety of concerns that people have voiced in the media and otherwise. But again... You know, moving towards the announcement of pots of money, whether it be $4 billion in the housing accelerator fund federally and or the monies that were just put forward by the province to build housing and affordable units at that, to get those things done and to get them built and to find the contractors to do it and to get the permitting uh, time frame hopefully under control is not going to be tomorrow. So that's what I'm, why I'm wondering, you know, modular homes, sleeping tents, whatever it is the Mark and Robin and others are working towards, trying to build some sor- short-term solutions that keep people in and out of the elements. Anyway, let's take uh, that on or whatever you want to do right after this. Don't go away. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Dave. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for putting me on, you and Dave. Uh, Patty, I'd like to offer my condolences to the family off, off the late Bud McCachran, who passed away Thursday, November the 30th, at his residence at the age of 88. Patty, Bud was the referee-in-chief back in the days of the old Bay St. George Hockey League when we played in the old Stephen Gardens. The teams were the Stephen Monarchs, Stephen Crossing Rangers, the St. George Athletics, the Port Port Vikings, and a team from the College of Northern the Braves. Uh, Bud called many penalties on me, but we were great friends over the years until he's passing. Bud was a big Toronto Maple Leafs fan. He had a room down in his basement with everything hanging on the walls with Toronto Maple Leafs on it. Patty, Bud even had a seat with the number one marked on the back of the seat from the old Toronto Maple Leafs gardens when he tore it down. Bud just loved hockey. Fantastic. What's the time frame are we talking about for you to be playing and Bud to be calling the games? What was that, Patty? What, like, what decades are we talking about where you were playing and he was the that ref? That was the old senior league in Bay St. George, in the old Stephen Gardens. Yeah. Because uh, uh, I, I lived in Curling and I moved to Whitburn. Dad, my father was with the, with the agency uh, with CNR, went to Whitburn to Harbor Grace. And then when my dad moved back to Asian Steamer Crossing, I stayed to play with the Seabees on the Follett. So when I came to Steamer Crossing, I played with the St. George Athletics and then with the Crossing Rangers. Uh, so are we talking the 60s or the 70s or yeah, in the in the 60s and the last in in 17 71 right and then everything folded but a uh, patty was at the old steamer garden she used to be blocked to the rafters you couldn't get another person in there and 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 patty yeah but we used to all meet at tim horton's friends over the years and we used to pick at board about the Maple Leafs, especially the Montreal fans, and Bud was just laugh. And I used to say, Bud, Toronto was never going to win the Cup. Now, Dave, he says, you know they're going to win the Cup. That was last year, but they never, right? No, it's been a long time since the Maple Leafs have hoisted the Stanley Cup, 1967, as everybody's painfully aware. So uh, I'm sad to hear the loss of your friend, Dave. And I would imagine if he was part of those groups that meet at the Tim Hortons, the hockey guys, it's amazing stuff. The guys that I played with are still guys I see around. So you just pick up where you left off. It's amazing stuff. 
Yeah, and you know, we'd meet at Tim Hortons and one of his other good friends, uh, uh, Arch Lock, and was many of us, right? Yeah. And Patty, before I go, uh, this man comes on your show, Mike, I think his name, telling you about this company that is draining our health system. Yeah, Mike is from, Mike uh, calls about the Compass Group. Yeah, and where is our government or opposition on this? Petty, are they all on a gag order by Eastern Health? Well, they shouldn't be. You know, you make an interesting point regarding the opposition. It's one thing for the government to be tight-lipped about these things, but if the opposition don't consider it a concern, then why not? Because Mike's not wrong. If that amount of money is flying out to the hands of the Compass Group, and he recommends that people just go Google Broken Compass, the scandals of the Compass Group. I've looked at it. He's, again, not wrong here. So the question would be, why is there even a need to have a big multinational company involved in the types of healthcare provi- provisions that they are? Like, why, why is it? Why can't we just do this locally anyway? Laundry, food preparation, whatever else that they're actually doing. Add in the phone med service and the expansion of virtual care and the private vaccination clinic at the uh, Federation building. It's a... We're seeing a trend. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, but Patty, uh, before I go, I'll let you go. Can you get somebody from government on or the opposition to come on and see if see what what's going on? Happy because to do like it. I'm with the healthcare committee over there. Is this going to happen to Western L2 with all this going on? I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm happy to ask about private offerings. You know, even when we talk about the vaccination clinics, so the Registered Nurses Union is upset about that, saying, you know, it's eroding trust in the public system. The government says, well, the public system is under a lot of pressure, and consequently they wanted to provide vaccinations to government employees and their families, you know, to try to ease the burden on the public system. But, you know, it's a question of priority, and it's a question of where you decide to invest or spend money. Yeah, I, I listen to your show every day. If I don't listen to it in the day, I listen to it in the nighttime, Betty. And we need answers, like even with this private nurses and all that. It seems like it's, everything is upside down, and somebody got to come out and tell the truth. Holy macaroni. Yeah, Dave, I'm happy to have the minister, whether it be finance or Tom Osborne or all the relevant ministers, on to exact, ask him exactly that. And I appreciate the call this morning, Dave, and my condolences on the loss of your friend. Thank you very much, Patty, and uh, I'm so sorry here, but I didn't know who got hurt. Oh. Yeah, Patty don't be talking. Terrible. Start. Yeah, 10 or 12 weeks on the sidelines. Yeah, oh, and we all won last night. So. Yeah, empty netter, beat the Kraken, 4-2. I'll take it. There are, yeah. the Montreal got a decent young team this year. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Well, they're rebuilding. They're going to be good down yeah, the road. I think so, too. Okay, thank you very much, Patty. You're welcome, Dave. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, will I get the bouquet before we go to the break, Dave? That the play? Okay, let's go to line number four. Good morning, Kevin. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hello there. Uh, Patty, I'm calling in this morning. I wanted to thank a few people, a couple of people, politicians. Okay. Uh, we had a, I'll just give you a rundown. We had a store here, a fisherman's store, which I'm chairman. We had a store, and we couldn't get no shingles put on it for five or six years. I'd fight, I'd fought and fought. But, Patty, I see the light. I see the door open a little bit. So I said I'd go after it. So I sent in an application, and I want to thank John Haggy this morning for signing off on that and giving me the, the saving our fisherman's store. And another good thank you goes out to uh, to Tony Wakeham. He, he helped me tremendous. You know, Patty, when you're in a small place, I think if you put in a good proposal, 
after those fellows they'll act on it but John Hagee and Diana Spur these people acted on, on my behalf and we got it all done what was required to save the store why what did you need to save the store well, we needed all, all the top part shingles. We, we was in disrepair, so we got it all done, and now our store is in tip-top shape. Glad to hear it. You know, sometimes uh, politicians aren't all evil. <laughs> sometimes they're in your corner, and ho- I'm well, glad to hear I, you these, got the help. What? These guys, they were in my corner, which they helped me tremendous. John Hagee, Diana Spur, Diana Spur, and Tony Wakem. I really want to say thank you today to those people. They really, really helped me. I'm glad to hear it, Kevin. What kind of stuff do you sell in your store? Well, not a, not a, it's a fisherman's store. We we handle all fish. Oh, it's a, okay. It's not a, not a convenience store. Okay, a, I was misreading it. Fair enough. Yeah, you were misreading me there. But then you know, it's a fisherman's store, which all the fish, we have three or four uh, communities coming into our place selling fish. And the store, store needs it, needs it done, and we got it done. And I'm very proud to say that. Those people helped me out. Well, uh, I, I, Tony Wake, Tony Wakem, John Haggy, and Diane Spear. How long you been at it? So, uh, about five, between five and six years. Five or six years. Kevin, I'm glad you got the help to keep that fish store uh, up and running. I appreciate the call. And I appreciate you too, too, buddy. Thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. Bye bye. All right, All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of show to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, uh, Patty. I'm losing my mind this morning. Me too. <laughs> uh, you had a gentleman on a call yesterday, and I was talking to Dave. He was looking for us. Uh, one of those foot things that goes on because of, he fell and broke his leg or tore it up or something. Yeah, I look for a brace, yep. Yeah, I, well, you know, I told Dave we had one, so the person called. Unfortunately, uh, it was a size too small for him, but it was brand new. Uh, and when I was talking to Dave, he suggested I talk to you and uh, just let people know that uh, we have all kinds of things like that here. Uh, and, you know, people need stuff like that. Give us a call first. Uh, and because we have everything. We have uh, all kinds of uh, toilet aids that people need. And again, it's all free. We just let people take it, and when they don't need it anymore, bring it back to us. Uh, right now, we have, uh, I think it's, it could be three electric wheelchairs. One is worth about 20 grand, uh, I'm told. Uh, the two of them, practically brand new. Uh, one that was donated the other day needs a battery. Uh, but all kinds of aids that people need, especially when they get at the Miller Center and places like that, just give us a call, uh, come in and see us, and uh, we'll certainly see if we can fit you out so that, you know, uh, a lot of times people can't afford to purchase those things because they are quite expensive, and uh, we don't want anything for it. We just, people just donate it to us, and we donate it back to the community. Uh, and it's a very helpful resource for people because you're right, some of these medical aids, orthotics or otherwise, are out of reach financially for a lot of folks who need them. So best thing to do, of course, for people to give you a call. What about if I'm living far afield from St. John's and the Hub? Uh, we normally will just uh, talk to uh, some of the uh, people that do deliveries, and, and they will deliver to them uh, free of cost. Uh, and if we or not, they'll do it for a reduced rate or things. Now, some of the larger things like uh, power chairs and things like that, 
Uh, it's beyond our financial means to be able to ship them across the province. Uh, but if people are willing to pay the shipping and things on it, we'll, we'll throw them on a, one of the carriers and certainly ship it to them. Uh, but again, we want to make sure they have a need now. We've had these issues in the past where we donate these things to people. The next thing we know, we'll look on Facebook and there they are for sale. So um, that'll always happen as long as you and I are alive. But we ask people, if you have a legitimate need, then certainly we'll try and get it to you. Yeah, fingers crossed that folks understand that, you know, it might be enticing to pull a fast one on the hub, but that's just leaving someone else who really needs it out in the lurch. So come on, folks, be realistic and reasonable. Uh, Tom, appreciate this. Give us the, the number for the hub. Yeah, it's uh, 709-754-0352. And I know Jerry is sitting there now and she's saying, you SOB, Tom, you're going to have me getting phone calls all day. But be nice. Don't call unless you legitimately need something. Thanks for this, Tom. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. I mean, there's the summary message. If you don't need it, please don't call them and get it and put it on Marketplace on Facebook or try to hawk it somewhere else. Anyway, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number one. Colin, you're on the air. Hey, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Not bad, I suppose. How about you? Pretty good, thanks. wanted to talk about uh, one of the stories that you mentioned in your opening about the serial drunk driver who has a lifetime prohibition ban now on driving. Uh, Mr. Whalen. And, uh, you know, I just find it very puzzling how somebody who has a, a lifetime ban on driving handed down by a court because of impaired driving and and an impaired driving related uh, conviction where somebody died, how that person can even get their hands on a vehicle in this province. But how can you keep someone from doing exactly that? Because you can buy an old beater off someone for $500, not insure it, not register it, and just get behind the wheel and carry on as, as if things are normal. So how do you suggest we actually pragmatically keep people from doing stuff like that? Because I asked the same question. So I'm not saying that you're wrong. I just don't know how you actually and practically keep them from ever getting behind the wheel again. Yeah, I, I don't know. Well, with regards to the licensing and the registration of a vehicle and things like that, you know, you could be doing, uh, like you said, I guess a secondhand or a private sale. And uh, the le the legislation in the Highway Traffic Act, I don't know if there are loopholes in the, in there for, for those types of sales that you can just sell another vehicle to somebody who has a, uh, a lifetime ban on driving and there's no red flags raised with DMV or anything like that with the transfer of the vehicle to, to someone who, who's not even allowed to drive. If there is a loophole in the Highway Traffic, Traffic Act legislation that doesn't cover sales like that, then it's time to amend the legislation and, and, and tweak it such that it covers off on, on sales like that, right? Yeah, I suppose that could stand for all kinds of other background checks that could be done when we see a vehicle transfer to someone. You know, I, I don't know what those crimes would constitute, but certainly in the case of this particular fellow, uh, his criminal history regarding driving while drunk is absolutely abundantly clear, including the fact that 83-year-old Jane Newhook is dead as a result, and the seven-year prison sentence, I don't know how much time he actually spent behind bars, but it's hard to imagine a circumstance where he's not going back in uh, at this case. But, I mean, the stories are just terrible and you know we only hear about the folks who get caught i mean let's add that to the conversation yeah it's um the vast majority of people uh who, who get convicted of, of a crime uh will not repeat 
you know, there, there won't be a recidivist. The vast majority of people uh, will learn their lesson through uh, deterrence and, and rehabilitation and things like that. But there are some people like this guy who just apparently is unwilling or unable to control his behavior. And uh, in the process, he gets his hands on the 3,000, 4,000 pound piece of uh, equipment that he's just going to go barreling down the highway and he doesn't care if he kills or injures people. We have to wait, I guess, the next time. Maybe he'll hit a school bus or something and kill 20 or 30 school children or something like that. And then maybe we'll take it seriously. But um, I think, you know, the criminal code uh, has to be looked at, the dangerous offender legislation for people like him. He has, a, in my opinion, a, a pattern of behavior that... Uh, he just has a callous and reckless disregard for the uh, lives and safety of other people. And he's either unwilling or unable to control his behavior. And obviously, uh, deterrence doesn't work. He, uh, he uh, you know, was convicted of a uh, impaired driving causing death uh, charge back in uh, 2018. Went to prison. Doesn't matter whether it's seven years or 12 years or 15 years. He obviously still didn't learn his lesson. So I think the, uh, the dangerous offender provisions in the criminal code. I think they had to be looked at and uh, tweaked to uh, cover off of people like him. Albeit, you know, he's he's probably, arguably, uh, a rare case. But there are people out there like him who just don't get it. So the uh, safety of the public is of paramount importance, and he's unwilling or unable to change his behavior. So I think he has to be kept in prison. You're not going to get an argument from me on this one. You know, got out of the, the vehicle, I don't know what he was driving, and said to the young fella with a broken leg on the side of the road, you're all right, bye, get up, get in the car and drove away. I mean, so there's a callousness to it on top of the obliviousness of getting behind the wheel while under the influence in the past. Anyway. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a perplexing problem. He, uh, you know, and, and, and he obviously has, uh, you know, addiction issues with alcohol and maybe other drugs. And that's for uh, medical people to sort out, psychologists and psychiatrists and things like that. But his behavior is extremely dangerous. There could be you or me tomorrow that he could uh, end up uh, being involved in an accident with you or me or somebody else. And uh, that's just not acceptable, I think. it's uh, The safety of the public is, is of paramount importance. Uh, the Parliament has to look at the dangerous offender legislation to cover off uh, something like this. It's, um, in, in the... Uh, dangerous offender legislation that they have a series of offenses called personal serious personal injury offenses i think it's time to start looking at uh for driving causing death and maybe fit, fit that into uh into the legislation under the under that provision of the criminal code and make it uh comply with the charter and things like that that's what the department of justice is for they have lawyers there to do that but to, to stop people like him who obviously don't get the message right i appreciate the time sworn colin thanks for the call Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, and I'm not going to squeeze in a call before we get to the news because we're just about 60 seconds from the newscast. But curious email in response to something I talked about off the top of the program this morning regarding shrinkflation. The fact of the matter is people are buying things that are mislabeled on the packaging, thinking they're getting a, uh, a kilogram and getting 500 grams, those types of stories. And these are very real. And the comment coming from the emailer was, you know, what are you talking about? Boy, this has been happening forever. Number one, what, what difference does it make if it's been happening forever? It's happening now. So it's a conversation we could and should have today. And, you know, then they went on to say, and I don't know, maybe they're just yanking my chain. But so what are you going to do about it? 
Well, there's all kinds of tools available. So inside the world in operations, uh, uh, under the authority of the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, there's all kinds of arenas where they actually uh, put forward fines for people who are in contravention of the rules that are in place. So they have very clear rules regarding labeling. So I would suggest if we'd like to see a reduction in the amount of reduced product and mislabeled products, maybe, just maybe, we could teach the General Mills and other companies of the world a lesson. Every time you get caught, there's going to be a significant fine. You know, what's wrong with that? Canadian uh, shop, grocery shoppers are under significant pressure. It only gets worse that when you give someone five bucks for a kilogram and you get 500 grams, then that's basically ripping me off on purpose. Right? If it was done in other walks of life, there would be an uh, actual penalty to pay. And so maybe, just maybe, even if it's been happening forever and a day, I find that to be completely irrelevant. The fact of the matter is it's happening today. So why wouldn't we talk about things that are, in large part, purposefully and winful, willfully misleading people? Consequently, some people might characterize that as being ripped off. Anyway, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, plenty of time to talk about whatever is on your mind. Don't go away. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. Your Merry Christmas station is back. Your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on line number one. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Quick comment on that uh, health information. It's, it's amazing. Newf- Newfoundlanders are living 2.58 years less than the average Canadian pretty hard to wrap your head around that it is it's a bit of an unsettling number yeah and like dr parfrey said you know it's uh, you know a lifestyle social determinants of health all these things and i think we need to run at that and not be afraid to talk about it but i know we i know you keep talking about it, so that's good i want to make a quick comment on the snowstorm last week and um i know a few people have weighed in on it but for, you know, from my perspective, you know, we now have proven we can go online with pretty well as many things as possible. I imagine most things. And if if they need to send students home and need to send workers home, then we should be able to pivot um, and have people continue to be productive. I think that should be just like an automatic model. You know, I, I, I don't see why we just can't build that. For the winter months, anyway, we know it's going to happen. We know we're going to have snowstorms. I mean, if, if you play out, even if it was a snowstorm, but let's just say we didn't have a snowstorm, so what's the loss to the economy? What projects, you know, the people who work for the government, what projects would get sidelined or delayed? Or what, what would be the impact? Maybe projects that just wouldn't hap, ha, happen at all, or people who desperately need the services of our 50,000. Now, I know not all of them stopped working, but, you know, however many stopped working because of the storm. I mean, I think we need to try and figure out a way to really value the work of our employees and also have an expectation that we have continuity of business, whether it's pandemics or snowstorms. Fair enough. COP28 is ongoing in Dubai right now, and uh, you know, I've had some pretty big commitments from a bunch of countries to really double down on nuclear. Um, 28 countries, including the United States, have said they're going to triple the production of electricity from nuclear, which is a which is a big change in direction, and, and a lot of people in the in the uh, who analyze it pretty well have figured the only way you have a sustainable electrical grid is you need base load, and the greenest base load once you get the concrete, if you can figure it away, especially there's a lot of concrete goes into nuclear power plants, but if you know once you if you can mitigate that, 
Um, you do have to deal with the waste, obviously, but it's, it's the best base load that you can that you can uh, use because obviously renewable is is cyclical whether the wind's not blowing or the sun's not shining. Yeah, now storage capacity and storage technology has uh, improved exponentially over the last decade as well, so there's room for that part of the conversation. Nuclear gets a, I was going to say bad rap, nuclear gets concerns automatically because people think back to some of the disasters that have happened, Three Mile Island or what have you, when in fact if you look at the big scheme of things, it has proven to be very safe and uh, very uh, good for the environment, if that's how we're going to phrase or couch this. So, yeah, there's going to be a move, and there is in this country as well. Ontario, Saskatchewan, moving to partnerships regarding small nuclear. But also what's being featured at uh, COP28 is the largest presence of fossil fuel lobbyists since they started these meetings. Yeah, you know, and, you know, getting in, I'll get into what I want to talk about next, which is just the way that the technology companies are managing and the the big data companies, the Facebooks, the Meta slash Google slash uh, X slash whoever, whatever one you want to pick, wherever people get their so-called news. TikTok. Um, TikTok, yep. I mean, people need to realize, and you know, there's 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 all kinds of information, and you can listen to you know Nobel Prize winning uh, Maria Reza. Like everybody should Google her, Maria Reza. She she's a Filipino. Uh, a journalist who has basically devoted her life uh, to trying to educate all of us as to the dangers of these companies. They are profit-maximizing, data management, publicly traded, multinational, soulless, and destructive monsters. And and the challenge is they don't gatekeep. You know, the da- the danger with losing gatekeepers. So so traditional media who've now are in the crosshairs of right-wing, uh, ultra-conservative uh, people, the, they were gatekeepers, so they had a responsibility. And I, and I know you're in that world. So, you know, there's, there's times when a media organization might choose not to do something, even though it wouldn't necessarily be in the best interest of their profit, because they have that responsibility to be as accurate as possible. Now, you could argue that that's deteriorated a fair bit, but nonetheless, there are real people in your community that are answerable to the community. Uh, but these organizations, they're just profit-maximizing it, and they've figured out, like, like I don't, people really need to understand that, that they know everything about you. They know your highs and lows. They know when you're the most vulnerable. They know what you click on. They know what you listen to. They know what you follow. They know where you are. They know where you travel. They know all your family. They know you went to school. Like, like they literally know so much about you. It's, it's unimaginable. So that Maria Reza says that they basically have created a clone of you, which they own. So they own your clone, which is basically all who you are. And then they sell that to people who are at the, to the highest bidder, which isn't necessarily someone who has your best interest at heart, most likely. It's, it's definitely, it could be a, another company. It could be a political party. It could be another country like Russia or China or someone who's just trying to manipulate you in any way, shape, or form. And then they turn around and they feed you information that may or may not be true. And the challenge, you say this all the time, that the lie is all the way around the world before the truth gets out of bed. Well, MIT came out with a study that said that lies spread six times faster than the truth, and especially when there's emotion. So when you're reacting to your news feed, and you notice that you're emotional. Realize that's a deliberate. 
and, and they are targeting you based on what gets you upset, and, and everybody will react differently. You know, we, we, 80 to 85% of people determine how they vote by how they feel. Not necessarily who the best candidate is. It's an emotional thing. And these companies realize that they know you so well, and they, they just, they just sell, sell you to sell your vote, basically, more or less, to a party. You know, we live in an attention economy, so social media companies get us addicted to their content, and we need to realize that it's an addiction. Um, the Philippines were kind of like a test case for for uh, Cambridge Analytical and Meta, Meta when they were determined how to manipulate people. But but uh, Maria Reza and her team determined that 26 fake accounts, which are created by Russian or Chinese, who knows, which which who were who were basically helping to get Duterte elected, 26 fake accounts were able to manipulate three million people. A lot of people listen and say, "Well, I won't get, I won't be manipulated by that." Well, I think we all need to realize, no matter how rational you are, um, we're all being manipulated. Yuri Andropov, who's KGB chair, said basically, disinformation is like cocaine. You might get away with doing it once or twice, but if you take it all the time, you become a different person. And and these tech companies are behavior modification companies. And also we have to deal with social media influencers who also kind of play into that. But they manipulate us. They can tell lies. They can, or they can introduce doubt into our minds. So then they don't have to lie. They can just, you know, put out like, you know, the, think of big, big tobacco, big oil, big pharma. They, sometimes they just put out information just, just to confuse us, scare us, or, or offer us an easy solution and not do something, you know, like take this drug to lose weight or to be a different person or whatever. And we, we sit around and we, we don't even realize it's happening. But a lie told a million times becomes a fact. And, and that's true. And, and there's a lot of people, very intelligent people with you know, university degrees who do not believe in man-caused climate change. And it's universally accepted amongst all respectable scientific communities. Like you'll find scientists, you'll find people with letters after their name who will introduce doubt into that into that question. A lot of them, you'll find, are subsidized directly or indirectly by parties who somehow benefit from it. But the, the real danger is that if we can't agree on facts, we can't have truth. And this is a quote from Marie Reza. Without facts, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. Without trust and truth, we have no shared space. And democracy becomes a dream, and it's under threat. And right now, in many countries, including ours, we have individuals who are targeting what they, what they call legacy media. It's, an, it's like this new word, um, because that somehow makes them bad. And we have the same leaders who are willing to throw legacy, le- legacy media under the bus totally. Like, let's totally get rid of them. Like, let's turn their... their Head off. It's not a big problem how much money CBC spends in general and how much money we have to give them, and I won't argue about that. But any leader who is discrediting um, the media, the traditional media, is dangerous because that's one of the first things that someone who's trying to take power and manipulate us will try and do is take away the, take away the parts of our society that keep us together and divide and conquer us is a way to get elected, but it's, it's a scary thing. So, you know, I would like to call on 
the Conservative Party, who I agree with many of their tenets, to first of all take ownership of climate change, this whole axe tax thing. Most people who want to vote for conservative because they think carbon tax is bad don't realize they're going to get more money in credits than than they'll pay, than it will cost them. But that's not what our, that's not what the conservative party is focusing on. Well, it, it's a catchy slogan. Uh, so a couple of things. Like, I mean, the tobacco companies told us their product was safe, and, of course, they knew at the time it wasn't. Big Pharma, you know, we'll look at Purdue, for instance, with the opioids. They told us they were safe, and, of course, they've proven to be absolutely disastrous to society. And, look, the whole bit about legacy media and woke media and all this kind of stuff, you know, we have arrived at a place where uh, many people only want to hear what they agree with period and so that gives us a lot of niche and some built-in biased companies that are you know identified a group of people that they know will be uh, faithful subscribers and clickers and help drive their revenue they've got the formula figured out and regarding legacy media like big cuts yesterday at the cbc there's what 125 million dollar shortfall people laid off across the country i'm not sure what the local impact will be here and people some in some corners are really loudly applauding it because they've heard that the cbc should be defunded and all the rest you know when we look at high level numbers and there is big money flows at cbc and i don't think their model works and i don't think it's fair when we talk about the competitive landscape of media in this world add in the the googles and the metas of the world which gobble up so much advertising revenue that puts all of us in a tough spot and and that's just nature of the beast in the competitive world. But we look at how much money goes to the CBC, you know, and I feel bad for people who are losing their jobs. It's $34 per person. That's the subsidy for the CBC. So when we hear the big number, of course, for many people, that's infuriating. But when you break it down to bite-sized morsels, it's 34 bucks per person. Is the CBC important? In my personal opinion, I do think it is, and there's a, certainly a place for a public broadcaster in this country. But anyway, I'll give you the final thoughts because I've got to get going. You know, I, I just want just want to close with the fact that people, we all need to contemplate how much we're being manipulated, and we need to, you know, use Google for good. You know, you know, you can use ChatGPT for good. Go to ChatGPT right now and say, you know, does man cause climate change, or what should we be doing? And you can ask these questions. You can Google it and get informed. And when a charismatic person who has a great show that you listen to all the time, keeps telling you what you want to hear. If someone's telling you what you want to hear, most likely, whether it's a politician or anybody, then probably not what you need to hear with the way the world is right now. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Bye-bye. And look, I mean, some of the conversations, they just become unmanageable, unwieldy, and in some cases impossible. Climate change is an excellent example. So, you know, like the tobacco companies told us that smoking was safe for you, and the uh, pharmaceutical companies have told us a variety of the drugs that they manufacture are safe for you. A lot of these things have been proven absolutely not to be true. You look at some of the environmental conversations going on at COP28, uh, fossil fuel companies are talking about uh, carbon capture and carbon offsets and the like. So, I mean, they know what they're doing, right? They know how it's worked for people who are supportive of the industry, and it's not going away overnight. Obviously not. And then inside the world of climate change, you know, people continue to say, well, man has nothing to do with it, da, 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 da. you know, it's not about fossil fuels, blah, blah, blah. The oil companies themselves, in testifying under oath, in particular in front of the American Senate, have said they've known for decades exactly what the contribution to GH2 uh, and emissions, uh, carbon emissions, what that means for the environment. They knew it. They sat on it. They told something publicly vastly different than what they swore to under oath in front of the Senate committee in the United States. They've admitted it. So if the oil companies themselves have acknowledged their role in climate change, then it's hard to understand why people don't, you know, 
take them at their word under oath they're the companies anyway it's sometimes frustrating but that's life let's take a break don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number two caller you're on the air patty my friend it's nice to speak with you again today happy to have you on the show fantastic uh, i did speak with you uh, a while ago patty about the topic of my choice that i'm calling today and actually your producer dave remembered the call specifically um but before i get to that patty uh i, I just want to say good morning to my nan uh she's listening this morning i'll just give her a minute to sit down i uh, love you nan uh, uh patty you, you spoke about this morning poor old alex newell on the heads uh, hurt his ankle and you know when i heard that happen first thing I thought about was the horror of his parents watching their son get injured and, and you know, uh, what the freight that that could cause. Uh, I'll come back to that, Patty. Uh, a couple of bouquets I got to throw out today uh, to some really good people uh, that are in the province. And I know, Patty, you know that there's good people in the province just as well as I do. Uh, there's a lot of them. So when I spoke with you, um, I believe it was just a couple of months back, I had the oil servicing done on my vehicle. And when I called in at the time, there was also another lengthy list of callers who also shared the same concerns with the safety that their mechanics had been providing them. Uh, that day that I spoke to you, Patty, it was fresh off of having a, a near accident, losing control when that underbody had dropped down. Uh, to provide uh, some scanty details about that, I did immediately go back to the garage where I had the servicing done. And, um, you know, they did put it immediately up on the list. And within a couple of minutes, they come and got me and told me I was ready to go. Uh, I didn't think no more than that. And uh, then I spun around. And I said, okay, so where's the bolts, the fasteners, you know, that was holding up this underbody? And, well, the response I got was, you know, kind of a lackluster. And he said, what they've done now is they've, they've put it up with zip ties, Patty, plastic zip ties. Which comes to the horror that I experienced last week. Um, I was driving along the highway again, Patty, and this piece that this garage had been so negligent on to put it up with zip ties had decided that the zip ties were, were of course, no good. Uh, Patty, the the underbody come down again, and this time I lost control. And uh, being projected at highway speeds, I went out over the embankment. Uh, luckily, I'm standing here today. But I mentioned the freight, Patty, that Alex Newell's parents had. Uh, I don't know why Miracle was working that day. I don't know if it was Christmas Miracle or something from the grace of God, but I know my man was praying for me that day. I was able to walk out of the car, climb up over the embankment, and I'm talking to you today. Uh, Patty, you got me a little shook up speaking to you. I'm sorry about that, but the horror now for that to happen twice because of this place, it's unreal. Now, you did give me some real good advice the first time I called you, Patty. It was real solid advice to Better Business Bureau. You suggested I speak to Service Newfoundland, and there's various others. Well, uh, Patty, uh, I was planning on taking these guys to court. Uh, of course, this is now a second incident because of their neglect. And I did seek some very solid counseling advice from uh, one of your legal advisors that you promote on the show all the time. It's a very group, uh, great group of people. Patty, uh, are you familiar with them? The, the Legal Information Service? Yeah, the PLEIN, Public Legal Information Association. Yep, good people. That is exactly it. 
And uh, when I spoke to someone over there, uh, she actually had the same name as the person who come to my rescue last week. And uh, that is the name of Sarah. Uh, and speaking of courthouses and uh, my bouquet, uh, Sarah called 911 for me when she saw me coming up over the embankment on the highway. Uh, she offered me to sit in her warm vehicle uh, while she put her plans of the day on hold. Uh, a very nice woman. And speaking of taking them to court, uh, this woman actually, now Patty, if I can just get sidetracked for a minute, uh, this woman and her husband out of Trinity, I believe she said, uh, they actually own a very nice little uh, chocolate shop and ice cream shop that functions in the summer. And uh, there's a lot of good people out there. So if some kindness can come to auntsarahschocolates.ca. Uh, I know she would appreciate that, and that would come from my heart if you can support a good Samaritan. Uh, but, Patty, uh, with the legal advice that I was provided, I am going to take these people to court, the mechanic that I spoke to. Uh, and along the way, I had also spoke to Transport Canada, who had confirmed that the part uh, in question was not due to a manufacturer defect and that it was indeed due to uh, the fact of uh, the servicing that was performed at that mechanic. I was also able to secure uh, the recorded phone and email conversations that I've had back and forth um, with this automotive place and with the help of Canada's privacy commissioner. Um, they were uh, The company itself was trying to stonewall me from getting access to my uh, private information. But I did get it. And along with the report that I have from Transport Canada, um, there is also now a request put in with National Safety Code. And that's the arm of the DMV, Service and LPETI, that you can actually make the complaints to about mechanics. And I wanted to bring uh, that place up today because of all the callers that are reaching in, this is uh, probably another number that they can write down for their Rolodex uh, to make a complaint about safety-related matters of their mechanic. Um, you want to write this one down as well, Patty? Sure. All right. Uh, so the National Safety Code, you will be speaking to lovely people uh, in the province, of course. Uh, when you speak with the National Safety Code, I have that number here. Uh, just a second now. Okay. I'm sorry about that, Patty. I don't have a right there in front of me. Uh, but the National Safety Code, they're the ones that license the mechanics. Um, and I think I'm going to have some great success. And uh, hopefully, Patty, if they're not more careful with the job, uh, maybe they'll lose it. Yeah, zip ties kind of stuff is something for backyard mechanics, not professionals. And it was a professional indeed, but I know the next time, Patty, I will not be going to the type of garage I went to. Uh, I'll be indeed going to a local mechanic, uh, somebody who has investment in the community, cares about the customers getting home to their families at the end of the day. Because I tell you, Patty, the company that I went to that day certainly didn't care if I was making it home or not. Only knowing I was headed on the highway, 100 kilometers an hour, putting my life in peril. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for the call. Uh, do you want to get to me uh, other bouquets, Patty? There was uh, Sarah from that cookie bake shop. There are CMP officers that come to my rescue. Right. And uh, there's also the kind old man that when he pulled me up at the bank, he didn't give me anything but a bill. Uh, he didn't give me a bill. He gave me uh, a great big hug, Patty, and a handshake. So Merry Christmas to him. And the same to you. Take good care. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, there we go. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, whatever's on your mind is what we want to discuss here in the program. Don't go away. 
Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Kim Kelly. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thanks so much once again for having me on. Happy to do it. So I'm here today to talk about the annual vigil to remember people who died by suicide. It's happening this Sunday, December 10th at 3 o'clock p.m. at St. Mark's Church at 203 Logie Bay Road. And, of course, the one good thing is that people can attend in person or they can live stream on the St. Mark's um, Facebook page. So people can watch from anywhere all over Canada. In fact, we hear from uh, those who've lost loved ones that they send the links to their family members in B.C. and all over Canada. And I just had an email this morning from people who'll be watching in Florida. So people can watch um, anywhere barrier-free and be able to remember their loved ones and to support those they know who've lost loved ones, right? So you don't have to have lost a loved one to participate in the vigil, right? One of the things I can say that as a social worker, um, you know, it's so important to support those who've lost people to suicide because people don't always know how to reach out, right? And it's very difficult for them. And, um, you know, Patty, you know, and, and the listeners, many of the listeners know, that I've also lost my brother Brendan to suicide. So, you know, I know what it's like, the pain of suicide loss. And, um, you know, we're so happy to be able to provide this uh, vigil to people and to partner with St. Mark's. You know, my job at Mon uh, after, you know, a gazillion years. (laughs) And uh, out of all the things I've done, I think one of the most important things that I've been a part of with our team, our committee, is to be part of this vigil. You know, we have people are so thankful and grateful that they have this opportunity to gather to remember their loved ones because it's really a -a one-of-a-kind opportunity. I'm familiar with what happens, but just, uh, you know, paint us a picture of what happens if people decide to attend. Okay, excellent. So, of course, the the music, uh, they're welcomed as soon as they come into the church to the sounds of Dan Dillon. And then when you come into, uh, you receive a candle and receive a program as you come into the church. And then, of course, we have the, the angelic angel herself, uh, Shelley Neville, uh, accompanied by Peter Halley, and they do the songs. And, of course, so they we have uh, prayers and, and uh, poems, and we do a candle lighting. And most importantly, we read aloud the names of all the names that we've received for people who've died by suicide. And, Patty, very sadly, we're at almost 200 names that we read aloud. And we also show a slideshow, so those who submit photos will have the photos in a slideshow. And that slideshow is done to the music of Judy Brazel, Shannon Power, and the Anna Sisters. And, of course, you know, all of the faces of those that we've lost are on there. So that's essentially what happens. And then we gather for coffee and tea and conversation with music by dance following the vigil. And it's a really nice opportunity, I think, for people. It's it's sad, there is no doubt, right, that, you know, we see the faces and we hear the names. 
But, you know, for family members, they get to know that their loved one is being, you know, or friend is being remembered because they hear their name mentioned aloud. They see their their face in the slideshow. And that's really important, right? So, um, you know, because it's so important to gather for community, especially at this time. So the day that we have it is called Compassionate Sunday. It's a day for people to remember children mostly who died, but we kind of uh, piggybacked off that, so to speak, and use it as the day to have our vigil because people, there's so much now Santa Claus parades and all the hype and stress around the holiday season. And of course, you know, people find it so difficult, right, with the impending holiday season coming up. So we want this to be to be a time where they can, you know, come in, relax, remember, and really celebrate the memories of their loved one, right? Because everyone who died deserves to be remembered. You know, we don't want that one, you know, the the there was the purpose of their death or how they died to be remembered. That's why we're gathering here. But everyone who died, you know, has their own story, right? They've, they've, um, you know, they might have been in concerts or music or played sports or, you know, had a family or contributed through their job or their volunteer work. So many contributions that people make in life. And we want to remember that. And we also want to shine a light of hope and healing, you know, to those that are left behind after suicide, to know that they're not alone, right, that we really are in this together. And, um, you know, I'm an example that, you know, I grew up in Cape Royal in a wonderful, loving, warm home, uh, you know, to uh, my parents, Bill and Sheila, and my brother, Scott and Brendan. And we had lots of love and fun and music and dance. And, you know, we are an example that if suicide happened in our family, it can really happen in any family. And, you know, suicide loss knows no bounds. It impacts individuals, families, groups, and communities from all walks of life. So, you know, we all gather together in this loss. You know, I've had many conversations, whether it be with you or Tina Davies or others, and every time this uh, topic comes up, I just think about one afternoon at a funeral home where I was within earshot of a couple of people asking the, uh, the parents of the, the, the kid who was dead, you know, what happened? And then they said, he died by suicide. And the hush fell over the place. Not everybody knew, I suppose. They saw maybe the obituary in the newspaper, and all of a sudden, conversation stopped. And it was palpable, as opposed to I think things are changing a little bit on that front. And Tina and you and others have, you know, given me some good advice as to how to talk about this particular issue. Use the right words. Don't tiptoe around. You know, say suicide. If you're talking about someone that you're worried about inside your uh, family or social circles, use the words. You know, because asking if someone is okay doesn't get down to the root of having a real deep conversation about exactly how they are, how they feel where they are mentally speaking so you know there's a, you know we just have to you know not be so awkward even though talk about one of the most awkward conversations you could possibly have if you approach it in a certain fashion you're much more likely to come out with some actual deep understanding of who someone is where they are mentally and emotionally so all these things including that afternoon funeral home first thing pops in my head every every time we hear the word is the hush fell over the crowd and that was it for conversation nobody knew what to say 
That's right. So we want to change that conversation, right? So I think that, you know, I think we're doing that uh, slowly. We're in the 19th year now of doing this vigil, and things have changed so much. Like, we're now at a point where we're getting so many names and slideshow. We really have, you know, that's really taking up the bulk of our um, vigil. So we've had to eliminate some uh, parts of our vigil, uh, you know, to accommodate for this so, so important part of remembering the loved ones. After all, I mean, that's the focus of it all, right? Um, so yes, Tina will probably be on talking to you later this week. And of course, she runs her uh, regular suicide loss group, which is an excellent um, group for people and, and part of uh, Richard's Legacy, Legacy Foundation. I also want to show a, um, throw a shout out there to the Rua Counseling Center, who recently held a virtual event in November for people who died by suicide, chance for them to come together. And to Juanita Simmons, who's really the backbone of our vigil, she really does a lot of the PSAs and a lot of the promotion and really gets that word out. And to Joy Smith, who, who helps along with that. And to uh, Kathy, who does our, uh, our slideshow as well. So just, you know, there's a, there's a, a team of us that really um, work hard to make this vigil happen. And we really want this vigil to be a place where people can come, remember, gather, and know that, you know, they're, they're not alone, right? Um, so that's really important as well. And so the detail, or pardon me, the deadlines for submitting a photo or our name, they're probably here today, maybe later on this week. So what, what's the deadline for submitting a photograph? So submitting, so that's excellent. So I guess before we go into that, Patty, if you've submitted, if people have submitted a photo before, you don't need to contact us again. If your loved one or friend was in the slideshow, you know, and their picture is there, it's there. It's not going to come out. So please don't submit another one to us, like, because it, it's hard for us where we're volunteers to kind of maneuver and change out photos. So know that your loved one is there if, if, if they were there last year. And the same thing for the, the name. Right. If the name of your loved one was read last year, no need to resubmit the name. The deadline to submit photos for new people who you wish to remember is today at midnight. And um, so that can be submitted to Kelly at mon.ca or Juanita. Now, that's a bit longer. Patty, we'll get you to put the information on your um, on your website. And, um, you know, and they can just send it to me and I'll send it to Juanita, Kelly at mon.ca. And so the deadline to submit names is not until midnight, uh, December 9th. I'll actually take names until I leave the house on Sunday. But, of course, the slideshow has to be done and time to music and all that. So we need time to kind of get all of that uh, for Juanita and Kathy to get all of that together. Uh, no problem. I'm actually going to forward along all that information to the newsroom if they're so inclined to make it a news story with all the contact information, deadlines, and the like. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Kim. Thanks for this. Thank you so much, Patty, and thanks for being an advocate to you and David. Like, I think you're two of the best at social justice advocates around that are not, you know, professional social workers or, you know, in, the, in that helping profession. You're always shining a light on the issues and connecting people to resources. And I just want to say that, you know, those of us in the community really appreciate all you do for people. And, you know, you really go above and beyond, uh, you know, your job title. So thank you very much. And uh, thanks to all the listeners as well and hope to see you at the vigil or see you through live stream thank you Kim. take care all right bye-bye there we go so i'll send those deets along to the newsroom Uh, let's take a break don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number one say good morning to the pc member for exploits that's playman forcey playman you're on the air 
Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Good morning. First of all, Patty, I would like to express my disappointment this morning uh, to learn that the, uh, there's been a temporary closure at the uh, Dr. U. Toomey Healthcare Center in Botwood. Since 2016, of course, uh, the Liberals cut the 24 hours in, in Bobbitt, and uh, residents have, a, have had concerns for that service in that area for some for some time. So uh, I will be playing, uh, paying close attention to that one for sure. There's been days here where you'll get those updates of closures or limited hours at a healthcare clinic somewhere in the province. There was not so long ago, I'd open up my email, it'd be boom, 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 like six or seven come right in in a row, and I saw that one this morning. So folks in the area, they need to be aware. Yes, indeed so, Patty. But, Patty, uh, I did want to discuss this morning uh, the lack of action of government, of course, bringing uh, legislation to the House of Assembly to address the uh, issues, of course, uh, plaguing Crown lands. And more particularly, I guess, uh, Section 36, you know, the adverse possession. You know, this one is causing residents, you know, the province grief and high costs, of course, and lawyer fees just to acquire their land and property that, they, uh, that they've lived on and occupied for years. Yeah, the quieting of a title is unnecessarily cumbersome and time-consuming and expensive. Yeah, it is so. And, you know, Patty, we've all, we've all heard stories, you know, and this one's going on, you know, not the, you know through different administrations, of course. But in, uh, in 2015, the previous government submitted a review, you know, to Crown Lands, and it, which was never, never implemented by the, uh, by, the uh, by the Liberal government. You know, they, they knew this review was done and was never acted upon. Eight years later, well, almost ten years later now, I guess, uh, you know, they decided to do another review uh, of Crown Lands and still brought forward no legislation. You know, and in the, in, in the re- review that they did, there were three changes. Uh, three changes were uh, changing the process from uh, 20 years to 10, you know, setting a, de- a definite time period, and uh, and and quick and quick claims, of course. And uh, and those those uh, those points were also pointed out in the uh, in the previous review of 2015. So it still wasn't active on by by government. And the 2015 review also had 134 recommendations. Again, Patty, last spring we brought uh, we brought in a PMR, Patty, to address the issues concerning Crown lands, you know, and and that got and that got voted down by government, you know. I, I, and I really thought that this fall we we would see some legislation to address the uh, address the issues of Crown lands. So no, I didn't see any legislation come through, Patty. So in the first week, I asked the minister if we would see legislation. He said, stay tuned. We waited. Patty, in the third week, I asked him again, guess what his answer was? Stay tuned. Yeah, it was hard to get all this necessary legislation tabled when we're only sitting for 39 days. 39 days, yeah. There, there is a, you know, we, we certainly need to be in there longer, Patty, to, to address the, some of the legislation that needs to be done there, of course, no doubt. Regardless of the party anybody supports, the disappointing thing regarding the complexity of Crown Lands, the disconnect, we have two different organizations that are part of the Crown Lands process here, which is unnecessary, it's unlike anywhere else in the country, is even if the government is going to eventually reject a private member's resolution, the fact that it didn't even generate any meaningful debate or conversation is really frustrating. Because, you know, we can focus in on the diamonds from Catalina or, you know, Adam Furlong out at his farm. But 
the issue, and if people want to take the time and look at the land use atlas right on the government's website, the amount of operations, business, industrial, commercial, and private homes that are probably on Crown land is enormous. So regardless of who you are in favor of voting for, listeners, the issue com- might come home to roost where you live because your hand might be, your home might be unknowingly on a piece of Crown land, and it might be your problem next. So regardless of what party you're going to vote for, it's wise for government to figure this out because the amount of time and frustration and emotion and money spent by people who follow th- this bloody process is completely unnecessary. It is, Patty. I mean, you know, uh, and they've had time to bring in legislation. You know, again, we brought this in, uh, this PMR, PMR in last spring. They knew there was a review done in 2015. They've had a, they've had ample time to bring in legislation into the House of Assembly to, for at least discussion to sort of we get down to the brass taxes of it and try to address some at least some of the issues plaguing the Crown lands, especially around uh, Section 36. And uh, that's where it needs to be, Patty. It needs to be brought into the House of Assembly. So I'm hoping again this spring, you know, they they know about it again now. Uh, so I'm hoping this spring at least we we could start the process of bringing in legislation to get some of this uh, this uh, problem addressed. Fair enough. Before we let you go, look, there's a couple of questions that people are asking. You know, Mike Higdon has really led the charge here on issues regarding some of the private offerings inside of healthcare. Yes, there's long been some private aspects of healthcare delivery in this country, but is you know things changed. When NAFTA was signed, it really opened the door for some of the big multinationals to be involved in more and more facets of industry here, including healthcare. So whether it be you know private uh, company brought forward to do vaccination clinics at Confederation Building, or Phone Med, or Teladoc, and the big one is Compass. What do you and your party know about the Compass contract and the the requirement for a company like that to have such a massive footprint in the healthcare in this province? What do you have to say about some of these private things? Because I know in some corners of conservative party thinkings, there is more room for private companies. But things like the behemoths that are Compass, I think is highly questionable, their role in our, our healthcare system. Your thoughts? Well, Patty, you know we've seen we've seen money uh, uh, gone to other companies in the past. You know, especially uh, for for things uh, administered by healthcare, and and now again for the for the virtual care. Some of this can be done here in the province, of course. Uh, but virtual care, you know, uh, is is part of the system. Uh, but you know, uh, going outside to those massive companies when when probably some solutions can be done here, and it's been, and it's been proven that it's, uh, that can be done here. You know, we uh, we need to see, stay close to that attention for sure. Well, I mean, it's not like they're offering high-tech stuff, right? It's not backfilling gaps where we don't have companies or individuals who know how to do food service, laundry services, those types of things. I'm not even exactly sure what different areas of Healthcare Compass has a big uh, investment in, but what we do know is no one can convince me that there are not companies smaller, more nimble, maybe more local, or at least domestic, that can be doing some of these things where the money will actually stay inside the provincial or the national economy as opposed to what's happening with the monies we're paying Compass, and the, the the numbers are huge. So I'd like for maybe someone in government, and I know that's not your role today, but Minister Osborne or Minister Cody or the Premier, we've really got to figure that out because there's some big monies flowing out the door for provision of health care. For sure, Patty. There's uh, lots of different ways we can look at it, and you know, and it's uh, it's been shown locally that uh, some of this stuff can be done. And uh, you know, we need to uh, see where our see where our dollars are going, and, and and keep it as close to home as possible. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Blayman. Thank you, Patty. Uh, just one note, I guess, uh, to you and your family, I guess, Patty and staff at VOCM and all your listeners out there. You know, I just want to say, uh, have a wonderful Christmas. The same to you, Blayman. To you and yours. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Freeman Force. He's the PC member, PC member for Exploits. Let's go to line four. Simeon, you're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. Good morning. I am calling uh, from Chihajit. I'm from Narushish, and my name is Simeon Jackwish. I'm 55-year-old, you know, man. An Aboriginal person, Indigenous person, First Nations, I don't know. What, I, I don't know what they call us anymore. Anyway, I'm calling. Uh, it, my, my call is not a political motivation or petty politics. I just want to make it clear, clear of that because... Every time I call, every time I speak, people take offended. Well, Simeon has, an, Simeon has an agenda for politics, but I'm, I'm not. The reason why I'm calling, I have a great concern, and I, I and I believe we spoke this uh, a few times now, Patty, on your show, and and I appreciate you taking my call this morning because I have a great concern uh, about the shelter that's going to be refurbished in Goose Bay in Labrador, and uh, it's forty million dollars. <laughs> A forty million dollars shelter, and that's 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 incredible. That is, and I I, I see the reason why I said it's incredible because uh, the amount that money that's going to be poured into that to that shelter. Yes, I'm not disputing. We need a shelter in Goose Bay because of the alcohol abuse and the drug abuse that's been happening within Labrador alone. And then the resulting and homelessness. So you, you, are you suggesting yeah. that the investment and the way no, they're approaching No, I, ha- I have to correct you. There is no homeless. I can guarantee you that. The people who are roaming around in Goose Bay, they all have homes in that Washish. Mostly people, the numbers are, uh, are, are coming from that Washish. They all have homes. I mean, we just had we relocated from David's Inlet to Narwashish, and they all have homes, all of them. They all have homes, and that's one thing that I want to make it really clear. And I believe Shehadi people also have homes are hanging around in Gusea. They all have homes in Shehadi. So correct me if I'm wrong. Do your investigation. Call your journalists. Call anybody if they have homes, because I say that. Two of my own children have home. We have a home here in Shadi. They have a home. They have a bed. They have uh, rooms to sleep in. And they have a home. But they still hang around in Goose Bay just because of their substance abuse and their addiction, of, uh, of cocaine addiction and alcohol addiction. So that's that's a fact. And that's, uh, that's very undisputed right now because I say that because I know. Anyway, the I call. I am very, very concerned about that shelter because the number of deaths, the deaths that we see in Goose Bay. I mean, I lost my son because of that. Every time my son goes out in Goose Bay, I know where I'm going to find him. I know I'm going to find him in the woods, drinking, drunk. I know he's sleeping outside somewhere. He doesn't need to sleep outside when he has a home in Shadi, which is a sober home and where he can eat, fed, wash his clothes. There are laundry facility, uh, uh, machines in our, in, our, in our house. And, I mean, if people want to dispute that, can they can come to Shadi 52 Drive, look at my house, look at the rooms, look at their, bed, their beds. If they want to dispute, if they if they think I'm I'm, I'm pulling their legs, that's not I'm not. But anyway, um, I, I understand that I have an allies that that people who are also on the same boat with me, the concern that uh, the, about the shelter. But uh, and I'm sure nobody really really 
speaking publicly about about the detox. We really need the detox to be refurbished within Labrador, within Labrador alone. I mean, I mean, I I, I stand to be corrected, uh, Patty, in Grand Falls, Windsor, Newfoundland, uh, close to Gander, there is a place called uh, uh, Oh my God, I don't know what's that. Uh, the place that youth center, the youth treatment. That's where Thunderheart, my late son, went. Uh, Grand Falls, Windsor. There's a treatment center there. I um, I don't know how much that treatment center costs. Probably I'll probably say ballpark uh, around twelve million dollars. Okay. Say that because it, there's a little gym in there. They got everything. They got a really good. They got a really nice setup there, and which is really good. And 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 and, and I appreciate that for the province of Newfoundland. Anyway, the forty million dollars. It's it's a little bit too much, and I think they're a little bit exaggerating on the homeless thing. They're, they're not really telling you the truth. What's are, they, are these people really homeless? I, I don't believe that. I have to say that because I really don't believe that. And uh, they all they all have homes in Nawashee. Right. The only yeah. Anyway. You know how much people died within a couple of years. Uh, can you give me the number? What do you think the number would be if you if you take a guess at crack at it, make a crack at it, and I'll put you on a hot seat here. Just, just well, I wouldn't. Number. I honestly wouldn't know. But let's. I'll throw out one hundred. One hundred. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know. Within two, yeah, yeah. Within 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 two years, we lost twenty people of alcohol-related deaths. And drug drug deaths. 20, 20 people, twenty young people, and that's too much. And uh, and we have lost people uh, found dead outside, frozen to death. And my grand goddaughter was found a couple years ago, uh, uh, just around the coast, close to uh, Skipper Joe's store. I think uh, he, she was my goddaughter. And she was found dead. I and, remember that story. It's a terrible story. Yeah, and, Simeon, I'm yeah, late for the and, news, but I'll give you the next 30 seconds before I have to go, sir. Yeah, and but I said, but I just want to make a send a message to the uh, the housing and also the business people that are, you know, using people's addictions to generate revenue. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. They're going to have retaliation from me. They're going to have retaliation from my allies. Uh, the allies, people that I work with, if they don't consider what I'm saying, if they don't consider other people what they're saying, we need a detox. We need they need to do, to do a thorough study the uh, what alcohol is doing to us. Then we Un- can talk business. Understood. Thank you for the call, Simeon. Yeah, thank take, you. Take care. Yeah. Bye bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Uh, hi, this is Jennifer Collins calling from Local Wellness Collective. How are you doing? Doing okay this morning. How about you? Yeah. I'm good. Uh, just want to jump on and speak a little bit about uh, the CBC article that went out today. Okay. Where do you want to start? Um, basically, right now, a lot of people were under the um, under the idea that uh, anybody uh, could receive delivery service from food banks if they had any barriers to transportation whatsoever. But in actual fact, it's that nobody under the age of 55 
right now can receive anything. Um, that includes children. Uh, that includes any participants of the Single Parent Association. Um, so, yeah, our, uh, our organization has been advocating the government for several months now to uh, try to maintain those services. So, I mean, we've heard this conversation, whether it be in the Seniors Advocate Report, poverty uh, regarding seniors, what have you. Uh, transportation hubs for food is pretty important stuff. Not everyone lives within a bus route or a walking distance of a food bank. So I very quickly had a look at that story this morning. So has it changed in the recent past where some of this delivery service was available and now it's not? Absolutely. Uh, it's part of the food line that was offered through Food First NL starting in May of um, 2020. Um, we were kind of lumped in with that and started our program with our nonprofit of uh, delivery service along with the food line. So then an individual, if they were in need, could call into the food line and then we would have delivery out the next day. We brought together a number of food banks and, you know, and then uh, as of March 31st, uh, 2023, the funding was discontinued. And if I remember correctly, the food line at Food First, they actually had to put it on pause just given the fact they couldn't even have time to call back everyone who had called looking for support. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. the numbers um, are know, it's, it's very – and the delivery service, I mean, you know, we service over 8,000 people from what we can tally. And other than that, there's that, – that was on the bare bones funding that we had, right? So, I mean, the need is beyond Metro. The need is far greater than what we were even able to cover, right? So, I mean, you know, we're – we're not doing good as a society if, if we can't get people who need food to food. A lot of people out there hungry for a variety of reasons. We actually spoke with Josh me this morning about the food insecurity report. So is the local wellness collective simply about that transportation, that delivery model, or is there other things that you're working on? Yeah, so we started very new, fresh out of the gate during the pandemic, just really with a desire to help the community um, in, you know, three pillars of health with mental health and wellness, food and food security and physical wellness and started with food because, you know, no good meditating if you're hungry. You can't really, you know, I can't tell you to go to the gym and exercise if you don't have a full belly for three days. So, you know, we, we worked with Food First and L and, and that just became who we were. That just became, it, it absorbed all of, you know, our small, very new resources. And, and we just worked with Food First and just developed this program that, as far as as far as I know, doesn't exist anywhere else, definitely not in Canada, where individuals can call, can, you know, reach out to whether it be a food bank or a food line or 211 or somewhere, and then have a, have a delivery service um, provide some transportation within 24 hours. You know, it was, uh, it was a lot, but it took up all of what you know what we did so we're not we're not funded by anybody right now we don't have any operational funding you know because this was what we did <laughs> right so you know no doubt in the future we will have more things but th this is something that clearly um we provide a service that clearly needs to continue so how did it work but you know i guess there was some volunteer fundraising efforts put forward and some government monies that have dried up and we know that the pressure on that that system was enormous so were people using their own cars and being compensated or how did you actually get the food to the the end consumer yeah so we just had uh you know we had we did our legal research to make sure everything was as it should be and then we were able to uh yeah have volunteers use their own vehicles similar to um I know Connections for Seniors runs one as well, which I know is very overwhelmed right now also. But, yeah, that's how it was and just compensated for gas. And, and the most of it kind of went into the organization, I think, of the routes per day. You know, we were operating in real time. So, you know, there has to be one person as a hub there to kind of organize all that. And if the individual isn't home, if there's issues with, 
you know, the, the location, you can't find the house, you know. So it was, you know, we, we're seeing transportation um, much greater need in our society now, um, like Amazon. We're seeing a lot of skip to dishes, all that stuff, right? So, I mean, we had just run a very, uh, a very clean um, program right now that was able to make the delivery after the tw- within the 24 hours. Yeah, we've seen like Food First expand and they have the Western Food Hub up and running. Some private enterprise have gotten involved like the Big Feed Club and what have you. There's a variety of reasons why someone under the age of 55 is unable to get to a food bank. So I don't know exactly how government decided that uh, getting food in people's hands <laughs> and consequently in their bellies wasn't a good idea given the impact it has with developing chronic health conditions, so, uh, concerns with your overall physical or mental well-being so there's a lot to this what kind of funding was in place i know it dried up in march but what kind of funding was coming from government um it was actually through food first so they were kind of the the overall umbrella for it because it was in conjunction with the food line and what's that number how much government money was coming uh, in the door oh dad i'm not sure okay i know i can can only speak to the amount that we were getting and i mean you know we were less than a hundred thousand a year so overall, the money is not a lot when you look at, you know, when you look at what is being provided in real time. We're not talking about policy actions. We're not talking about going to do a study for two years. We're talking about right now, if we had that funding tomorrow, we're back on the road. I call Jody from Bridges Hope and say, let's go, right? We need all those clients that are waiting on delivery that have not been able to get food, we can start tomorrow. It's uh, We worked hard to build the system the way it was. And, you know, it's just it doesn't it doesn't fly that it that it's not important anymore. Um, we have actually seen, unfortunately, our clients have died. I heard the man before me speak about, you know, addictions and, and mental health issues and stuff and, and how youth have died. Uh, one of our clients for sure has passed since we've stopped delivering. How many volunteers did you have working with you, Jennifer? Uh, we had about four, uh, five at one time. So I think we had about four. I appreciate the time this morning. Would you like to say anything else? Um, thank you for this. Thank you for this voice. Hopefully all of us together can move forward and, and you know, really advocate with government to uh, get, you know, go back to realizing that this is an important, it's an important program for the people of the province. Thanks for this. Good luck. Stay in touch. Thanks. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. That's Jennifer Collins, the development director with the local wellness collective. Just in case you missed the conversation we have with Josh Smee from Food First and L. New report regarding food insecurity numbers for Newfoundland and Labrador. It's called the Proof Report. 22.9% of households in this province experienced some degree of food insecurity in the previous 12 months. That adds up to about 116,000 people, highest rate of any of the 10 provinces in the country. Food insecurity uh, rate has increased from 17.8% reported in 2021 and has likely continued to rise since the data was collected. Here's the breakdown. 6.2% of households experienced severe food insecurity. It was 45 in 2021. 9.9% of households experienced moderate food insecurity. It was 86 in 2021. of households experienced marginal food insecurity. It was 4.8% in 2021. More than one in four children under the age of 18, that's 28.8%, lived in a food insecure household. It was 26.4% in 21. 58% of households that received any income from social assistance experienced food insecurity. Half of all households that experienced food insecurity relied on wages, salaries, or self-employment incomes as their main source of income. So we're not just talking about people on social assistance, for instance. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Herb. You're on the air. Good morning. Uh, as of yesterday, Patty, I was first-time caller. Now this is twice in two days. Terrific. 
Anyway, listen, I just want to let you know, uh, uh, before I get into anything here, uh, kudos to uh, Salvation Army for being down there last night and feeding these people in Tent City these beautiful meals. And uh, that was uh, a friend of mine was down there, and he said uh, he told me what was going on, and I said, "Well, that's pretty amazing, you know." So that's good. But anyway, I've been through the jigs and reels. Uh, I, I found that they needed a bunch of uh, cots. I tried to get some cots yesterday, all over the place, no goal. I tried several uh, building places this morning looking for some plywood uh, and stuff like that, just to go to make them some temporary beds to get them off the ground. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I. I was no luck there either. I did get some inroads with uh, Minister Pike, Paul Pike's office. I phoned his office and told him what I had in mind for the long-term situation. And uh, his secretary said she's going to check into it, and she's going to give the information and get back to me on what they could come up with. So that's as far as I got to that so far. There's a couple of people on the ground. I think Dave called you back with a contact name and number yesterday uh, about yes. some of the groups. There. And these are just local activists, volunteers, trying to put their heads yes. together to come up with a short-term yes. play here for building what they're calling warm sheds or something. I can't remember the phrase they used. Yeah. But I think that's going to happen. Yeah, I've been, in, I've been in touch with Mark Wilson. Yeah. He's one of them. Yeah. And yes, he said that's going on. That's going to be for temporary. But also I'm looking at the long-term solution as well, right? So... Uh, We'll see what can what we can come up with, and if uh, you know if the wheels uh, move uh, a little faster, we might get something done here. But I, I think that temporary housing is coming in, like Mark said, and, and uh, I mean if they need help with that, uh, he, he's got me on his team now as well that I can be there. Yeah, good on you, Herb. So where are they actually? I should have asked Mark or Robin this one. Where are they actually talking about putting these newly constructed units? Well, they're, what, they're, what's going on, Patty? They're going to be looking for uh, some place that can that can host them. You know what I mean? I don't think they have a place in mind as of yet, but they're they, they they've got some uh, feelers out if they can put them, you know, this spot or another spot or wherever. I'm not 100 percent sure. Mark, Mark would be the guy to talk to on that. Yeah, between Mark and the city, you know, if there's a yeah. pro- if there's a a program underway to do something, then you're going to need the city oh. to be able to react very quickly as well. Exactly, that's what I said to them. Uh, you know, they, they at one time they put me towards Newfoundland housing. I said, that's part of the problem. I don't want to talk to them <laughs> because if I got to go to them, it's going to it's going to take me years to get anything done. So, you know, I said, we've got to fast-track this. And I put that to the minister's office, and they kind of agreed with that, right? So anyway, uh, I guess I could leave it at that and see what happens. And uh, I'll be in touch with Mark, and if they need my help, then uh, we'll take it from there. Appreciate the time. Stay in touch. Well, thank you very much, Patty. You have a great day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep rolling. Say good morning to our friend, veteran, he hates that part, but veteran oil and gas advocate, Rob Strong. Rob, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, good morning to you. Good morning to you as well. So we're not going to talk oil and gas. At least we're not going to start talking about it right off well, the yeah, bat. Yeah, you know, when I get talking, we're going to end up talking about oil and gas, but anyway. Inevitable. So I actually read the story in Reuters regarding the proposed one-year or the possible one-year delay for the export of green hydrogen via ammonia to Germany, and it's really interesting, Rob, because, you know, there's direct quotes coming from their managing director that says, you know, their initial plan based on the MOU they signed in 2015 
2022 to start shipping the product to Germany in 2025. Now it's all the way until 2027, yet the company sent me an email this morning saying there is no delay. Well, you can't have it both ways. 2025 and 2027 are a gap of at least two years. So I'm not sure what's going on. I'm reading the same press release, Patty, and it actually quotes Sean Reed, Reed Leet, sorry, as saying the off-takers are not going to be ready to accept product until, within 2025, actually not until 2027, unquote. So I don't know why he's telling you something different when he told this journalist out of, actually out of Winnipeg, of all places. But yeah. anyway, when he told that for 2027. And you see, basically the reason being is that the, the people in Germany that are going to receive the hydrogen or the ammonia are not ready for it. They don't have the distribution network. So uh, there's no sense producing if you can't sell it. And you can't sell it until people can receive it. So... Uh, uh, so it's a, it looks like a two-year delay, and, and but I don't think that's such a bad thing. I think that gives us here in Newfoundland more time to uh, to get ready. I mean, how many how many people in Newfoundland, how many business people in Newfoundland know what an electrolyzer looks like? Very few, I would suggest. You know, when we're talking about eventual Department of Environment approvals or green lights for this uh, proponent and their proposal, I wonder if there's a need to factor in some of the financials as well. Because if the company is saying that the off-takers on the other end, they need time to work on the, the technology, the infrastructure to accept the product, to distribute the product, okay. But the company is also very clear. Unless the government, the federal government, finalizes the 40% uh, yeah. subsidy, then that's factor baked right into their business model before they make their final investment decision, I wonder should there be the need for them to have their financial talks in a row before even the final approval is granted? Because an environmental approval may indeed see the beginning of the project and the installation of turbines, but it might that doesn't mean necessarily that they'll ever produce a gig. So I wonder if we should incorporate, you know, some of the business model concerns into our final approvals. You're entirely correct. I mean, again, the, the same article talks, and again, I quote, those buyer commitments hedge upon the Canadian government finalizing details of a tax credit of up to 40% of the capital cost of building hydrogen plants. And that's a total cost of $12 billion. So, yeah, I mean, it's fine to get an EIS approval, but does that mean they can go ahead, or do they, or is it, as this article suggests, contingent upon that tax credit? The other thing I worry, I worry a little bit about, but I... I I, I don't know if I should or not because, of course, there's lots of competition. We have we have lots of people now wanting to supply hydrogen slash ammonia into Europe, particularly Germany, and by by a postponement from World Energy. That's not to suggest the other the other four proponents can't be ready before that. But it's, are we going to lose out in that market? But then just recently I read an article that Germany has now upped its, its expectations for 10 million tons. And so if you take the five, if you take our five guys, five companies that are doing it, and you say roughly 700,000 tons, some are a million, some are 400,000. So, you know, we're only talking about uh, five times seven, you know, 101. 1.3 million tons and Germany's looking for 10 million tons so there's a big market out there for sure there's going to be the whole concept of you know the race to the finish line and it looks like the group that's going to get off the ground first in this country is Everwind they look like their product is going to be available for production and distribution in 2025 now that said those who are big supporters of this transitional fuel industry of green hydrogen versus grey hydrogen even though it comes at a much different price point is that the appetite is there and it's growing 
growing day over day. If that's true, then we needn't panic at this stage. No, I don't think we do. But, but I think, you know, I think for everyone, I mean, they may be able to produce out, out of Nova Scotia because they have infrastructure in place already. Yep. But there's sure no way, I, I mean, there's no way they can produce from Marystown by 2025. Nope. I mean, it's 2024 now. We'll be in, you know, 30 days sort of thing. And they haven't got their EIS submitted. So uh, any production coming out of Everwind, I think, by in 2025 will certainly be out of Nova Scotia. I had the occasion to visit Point Tupper a couple of months ago and, yeah, it's a great facility. They've got a big dock. They have 6 million barrel storage capacity. So it's, it's, it's easy for them to get going. But as you correctly point out, I mean, the whole world's looking for green hydrogen or ammonia. I, I get it mixed up, you know. I, I, the, the formula I use is 120,000 tons of hydrogen equals 700,000 tons of ammonia. So when, I mean, my understanding is they're going to ship it in the form of ammonia because ammonia is in a, in a liquid form. It's a lot easier to ship than hydrogen in a gas form. But whatever, there's, there's still a big demand. And, and, of course, right now we're only talking about Germany. The rest of Western Europe, certainly, and well, I guess the rest of the world, but the rest of Western Europe is dying for, for an alternate to fossil fuels. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not already concerned about the delay, the uh, as, as I said, I started off, I said, we, you know, we have to, as Newfoundland business people, we have to learn this industry, and, and uh, we don't know anything about it. And, it's, you know, it's not, uh, it's not just sticking up a plant. There's some pretty sophisticated equipment. I mean, how do you haul hydrogen out of the air, and how do you get rid of oxygen in the air, and how do you, you know, you mix hydrogen with, with, with oxygen, and you get ammonia. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's beyond the grade 11 chemistry. Of course. Yeah, well, ammonia is basically the most practical form of yeah. transporting hydrogen. That's pretty much the basics there. And of course, then there's an end use for ammonia as well. Yeah. So that when they do the separation on the other side. Yeah. You know, everyone got a bit of a, a head start anyway when they got a $125 million loan from the federal government. All that said, their timelines are also pretty compressed. And they have the luxury of being able to hedge their bet between Nova Scotia and Newfoundland Labrador operations. They don't have final approval for their wind farm uh, in Nova Scotia yet uh, as well. So they talk about their potential to get in production by 25. They got a long way to go. Approvals aren't even in place in full. I think they do have approval for the hydrogen plant, but not the wind turbines. Yeah, that's exactly right. They, 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 and they, my understanding is that they'll probably trans, transship their their Marystown product to Point Tupper. Because obviously there's not a, there's not a massive big wharf in, in, in Marystown to bring in a you know, a 30,000 or a 130,000 ton uh, ammonia carrier. So they can bring use smaller carriers and bring it up to Point Topper, store it there, and then bring in the, what we used to call the VLCCs or the ULC, very large crude carriers or very large gas carriers. So they have that advantage whereby they don't have to uh, to build a big wharf in Marystown because they can have a smaller wharf and take it up to, up to Point Topper, co-mingle it with their ammonia, hydrogen, and then ship it off to Europe. So you're right. Everyone's the one to watch, but still, I, I, I think every, I think everybody's being overly optimistic vis-a-vis the timing. Uh, very likely. I don't think people realize, including me necessarily, just how big an operation World Energy is, because World Energy GH2 is just an affiliate or a subsidiary of the Boston-based company called World Energy. I read a story last week where they're looking to quintuple their operations in California, producing sustainable aviation fuel, multi-billion-dollar investment. So they've got their fingers in a bunch of pies. Very interesting. I saw the same article, and you know, it, 
it, it, it, I got reminded of the article when I heard about the new Virgin Airline air flight that left London, went to New York, flying on synthetic fuels, on, you know, vegetable oil, basically. And, of course, that's what Mr. Risley's doing out in California. So it's a big operation, no question. And, you know, well, $12 billion is a lot of money. But if you've got a take-or-pay contract, which I assume they do, then, the, you know, it's a bankable contract. You can go to the bank and say, I need $12 billion because someone's going to buy my product for the next 10 years or 20 years. Now, at whatever price, that's the question. There's there's a lot of people questioning the price, and, and I, I, I don't have a handle on that as, as, as of yet. But fascinating business, Patty, and it's uh, it's a good transition for those of us who have been in the oil business for a lot, lot of years. Now we can transition into this other industry, so we're going to keep us busy for years and years to come. Yeah, and then the one more complicating problem is I don't know if they're all going to get off the ground, all four that the government has put forward to the next phase, and I think we should include Pattern Energy at Port of Argentia. The next problem becomes people to build it. Oh, hey, listen, each of them, uh, each of them are looking roughly 2,000 people to build it. And if you get four of them going at the same time, there's 8,000 skilled labor. Where are we going to find it? I don't know. It's not going to be all available here. And we can't imagine there's going to be purposeful staggering of these uh, operations. And certainly with the business interest that they have and the capital they've been able to raise, they're not going to sit back in a boardroom and just agree, oh, no, no, that's okay. You go first. Oh, no. It's we'll wait. Be, it's going to be a race. That it will be. Rob, always good to have you on. Okay, Patty. Take Thanks. care. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, how are we doing out there, David? Let's take a break for the news. When we go back, we're speaking with you. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Gerard. You're on the air. How are you doing? How are you doing, Patty? I'm doing okay. How about you? Good. I'm calling in about that tent city. I, I was looking at the news last night, and uh, were there a controversy about Danny Breen and the Premier not visiting that tent city? Mm-hmm. Now, Paul Davis made a, made, uh, done the right thing when he come on, and he said they had lots of room down at the gathering place for them people, for for as long as they're up there in that tent city, but they had a few rules to follow, three rules to follow. Come in, have a shower, respect the people, have a good meal, which nothing but the best, the breakfast, dinner and supper. They're, they're, having be- they're getting served better than a lot of people in their family houses uh, because they're having a struggle. But what they done is tried to make a fool of Danny Breen where he didn't visit them. Now, he locked up the toilets. Yes, yes, the public was using those toilets. Apparently, what I hear, they, they, uh, some people had no respect for that, the mess that they left on the floor, the ceilings, the walls, the toilets, the state that they left them in. I mean... They could have all went to the gathering place. I don't know why them people are there anyhow. With all the work that's on the go in fish plants, we got we fish plants and farms and uh, fast food restaurants. I mean, it's only a matter of going to work. Possibly. I mean, you know, some of that. Of p- but the Gerard, I, I think it gets a little bit more complicated than that for some of the people there. We have to acknowledge that some of them are just basically unwell, 
and that really does pr uh, present a barrier to being able to work and some of the jobs that you described look no doubt about it if people are able-bodied and able to go to work they should do exactly that but some of the jobs Patty, that are out there Patty, Patty. There's a lot of young people there didn't show their face. Young girls, young men, no need of them being there. They could go to work anywhere. Listen, we got people 60 and 70 gets up in the middle of March, freezing cold, 5 o'clock in the morning, comes Staggerford, Whittles Bay, Cape Royal, from St. Shots to St. Vincent, St. Vincent's to, to Bear Roberts, and goes to work, Paddy. They get off after working 12 hours, they go home, they eat, they shower, they go to bed up 5 o'clock next morning, and they go to work with dignity. I just, they a check. I just finished saying that anyone who's able-bodied should go to work, so I don't know why you're yelling at me. So, yes. Well, then, if people... well, then, well then, Paddy, listen, I'm not yelling at you, no. But, <laughs> but Paddy... There's work out there. I mean, I, I go into lots of businesses and there's all kinds of handicapped people that go to work. Handicapped people. Petty. There's all kinds of it out there for everybody. But I mean, to, to Paul Davis, like he said, he had lots of room for all them people every night. Why are they there? Now, the people are bringing them all kinds of stuff. Why don't they invite them into their home and give them a shower and clean clothes and let them sleep for a night? But why are, why are they playing up to the media uh, uh, all, these, all these people that are going there, helping those people, invite them into their house? Now, the union brought the porta potties. That's fine. That's fine. Maybe the union will probably build four or five new houses in Camateers and put three or four of each of them in, in a new house. What's wrong with that? I'll Not leave it. that up to individuals. We didn't, we, didn't get a hand, we didn't get a house. We had to work for our house. And I'm sure you did. I did. I'm sure you did. Did you did you work on any fishing boats up in up in up in St Joseph's or the plank? Uh, on Riverhead. Riverhead. Did you ever work on the fish plank? I worked on the boat one summer. Yeah, well then Gary Daly or, or Andrew showed you how to work. No, Leonard. There you go. Yeah, Leonard. There yeah. you go, buddy. That's why you know us how to work today. Uh, I mean, I haven't had an unemployment check in my life. You know, let's just exactly. let's, let's just add this in because this is also the reality. Is gone are the days where mom or dad could stay home while the other one went to work and you could afford a car and you could afford a home and things were just a little bit more manageable. Now, the average cost to rent in the city of St. John's for a two-bedroom apartment is almost $1,200. So you talk about $1,200, break that down to what a minimum wage job pays, and even if you are able-bodied, and I, I agree with you, people should go to work if they're able to go to work, but many of the jobs that they'd be able to actually get pay that kind of wage, and consequently, even working can't get you a place to live. It's so we've it's got a changing world. It's the world has changed. I see people, I see people going to work the food land, and and, and they would treat children in the, in school, and 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 they can't can't do it. They're not getting no handouts. I don't know I who mean, gets what. I mean, we got all kinds of people 
all kinds of people here, father and mother working, three children in school, a lot of expense there, Patty. And when they come home at the end of the day, they say, are we going to get $100 for the groceries or are we going to pay the light bill? I mean, they're not getting no handout. No, Patty. There's all kinds of work out there, Hey, don't you tell me. I haven't, I haven't been without a job since I was a teenager. Uh, anyway, no, Gerard, I, I appreciate the time. Hope you're doing well. Anyhow, Patty, thank you very much. Take good care. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Look, and look, there is no argument against people who can work should work. I absolutely 100% agree with that. The issue that we're trying to uh, deal with at this moment in time is whether or not, like just say, you got a minimum wage job. Let me just break out my calculator and do a little bit of basic work here because it used to be a very different world. One of the two parents could go to work, one would stay home and raise the kids, and at the exact same time, they'd be able to afford a car and a home. Those days are gone, and they've been gone for a long time. Let's say 15 bucks times if you get to work 40 hours a week. And so that's $600 times four. That's bringing in $2,400. The, the ability to stretch $2,400 to actually not be in some need of uh, any additional supports is kind of outrageous because that $2,400, you pay taxes on it. You bring home, what, $1,700? $1,700, you got maybe four or 500 bucks left after you pay only your rent. So I'm not saying people shouldn't work because I think they should. I've worked all my life. My boys have worked since they were in their mid-teens. So there's no argument against that. The problem is the affordability issue is really, really unmanageable regardless of whether or not you're willing to work work many of the jobs you'd be many people would be qualified for are absolutely entry level and you've heard me say this countless times minimum wage is intended to be not a living wage but an entry level wage and the opportunity to move up the ranks and move up the pay scale wherever you take on these jobs now it can take a good long spell to move off the minimum wage to the next ladder the next rung on the ladder but i think we've kind of conflated the good old days with what's actually happening in the world today just think about how how many families, unless you've got someone who's way up in the 1% of ranks and makes, you know, the $250,000 a year, how many families are absolutely forced to have both parents or both caregivers working full time just in an effort to pay the bills? Forget the luxuries of life. So there's a lot of things that have changed here and changed dramatically in the last 30, 40 years. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Dan, you're on the air. Hey, Pat, how are you, big dog? Doing How's okay. going, buddy? I'm doing all right. How that's, about you? That's good, buddy. How, how are you, boy? Uh, I, I'm a young fellow from Ganner, boy, and uh, I've I seen on there, they had their Santa Claus parade there uh, the weekend, and i seen there on Facebook, boys smoking pot, out, out by, like right by the youngsters and that. Like, I, I think it's shocking, boy. I think it's horrible, you know. As a young fellow, I like to pat more than next fellow, you know what I mean? But... Getting on like that with youngsters around and that uh, is, is shocking, boy. It's shocking. It's shameful in that. You know, it should be more regulations than that with it for that stuff like that shouldn't happen. You know what I'm trying to say there, Pat, boy? I do understand what you're saying. And technically, by the way the law is written, you're not even supposed to be allowed to do that. So, shocking, boy. You, you know, know, a little bit of respect is probably yeah. goes a very long way here. But now, all of that said, it's hard to go anywhere where there's a bunch of people congregating without smelling weed these days. It's amazing. Yes, sir. I and I understand that too. Like you know, uh, uh, but to do that with something that's primarily targeted the youngsters, like that's gobbledy. That's gob. 
you know, that's shocking. That is, you know, I understand it's like if you're downtown or something like that, or, you know, boys at a party or even basketball game. I remember one time me and my wife went to the Rogues game there last winter and uh, had front row seats. And anyhow, uh, sat down and my God almighty, like, like a punch in the mouth. That was a uh, smell in the pot and that. And it wasn't only after the, the boys, it was out in the youngsters too. And that's enough to break your heart, man, to have a poor little youngster sit next to you and stink like that. Oh my God, I'm mighty by. Yeah, well, you know, I think when people heard that the government was legalizing marijuana, marijuana products, they th- that they actually thought it was a legitimate free for all. I mean, it is not that complicated, or not pardon me, it's all. not that uncommon to be parked at a red light or something and smell it too. So you're not allowed That's to true. smoke and drive. You're not supposed to be smoking it in public areas like at the downtown Santa Claus parade. No. Those things are yeah. not really what's part of the law here. So people, of course, no. you know, they're just going to do whatever suits them as opposed to how it might impact or affect anybody else. And fair point, you know, smoking it around the kids congregated to have a look at Santa and the big stick. That's, that's, that's horrible. That's, that's shocking. That's enough to break your heart, old buddy. And, like, smoking and driving, like, boys, I, you know, like I said, like, I'm not a demographic of boys that villainizes Pat, right? I'm the demographic of boys that they're targeting these ads, too, you know what I mean, and all this stuff, Right. And to be in the vehicle and, or hear, or even hearing boys saying, oh, yeah, I would never drink dry, but I'm after driving after smoking pot. Like, it's really apples to apples at that point, old buddy. You know what I mean? Like, it's not good. It shouldn't, shouldn't happen to begin with. It should not be on the road. shouldn't be around youngsters and that. And, and, and it just breaks my heart, Patty, buddy, to be honest with you, to be, to be here and tell that that poor youngsters is there waiting for Santa Claus to come and ask them, what's that smell? What's that smell? It's shocking. Yeah, and there's no end in sight either. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning. Anything else you want to say, Dan? No, that's everything, big dog. I appreciate your time, too. I appreciate yours. You and Clyde, you, you and Clyde did. I love you. Thanks so much. <laughs> right on. Thanks, Thanks buddy. Better. We appreciate right it. On, buddy. Okay, yeah. bye-bye. <laughs> All right. So just to pick up on Gerard's conversation, look. There's no general argument uh, opposed to the concept of if you're able to work, to go to work. I mean, for sure. Understood. There's, I think, some other complexities here. When we talk about the affordability issue and the fact that, you know, gone are the days of the 1950s or 60s where I could stay home as one of the parents and one goes to work and we can afford, you know, the fundamentals, the necessities, the, the necessities of life, the home and the car and whatever else. When you talk about certain segments of society and, you know, someone just wrote me an email said, you have to call a spade a spade. You know, life is about choices. That's true. There's also the concept of if you, for instance, have chosen something that uh, gives you an addiction that keeps you from being a contributing member of society, even though that might not be the right way to put it. I think when we look at the, say, for instance, and it's not just about people living in a tent city, is there has got to be some inclusion and acknowledgement of the fact that so many people in that particular life circumstance. Some of it might be about choices, but when we talk about addictions, at some point, the addiction has removed your ability to choose. Secondly, some of these people are absolutely unwell regarding their mental health. So it's easy enough to say that everyone should work, and I agree, if you are able to work, you should go to work. It's certainly something that was ingrained in me and in my children and most every family that I know. 
But if we ignore the fact that some of the hurdles or barriers face regarding, say, for instance, simply mental illness. Now, that's not to say people with mental illness can't work, but not every mental illness, not every person is the same. If you meet someone on the spectrum, you've met exactly one person on the spectrum. If you've met someone with an addiction, that's exactly you've met one person with an addiction. Some people are built differently physiologically and have different support structures in place to try to combat, to battle and overcome some of these concerns that absolutely allows them to go to work. So the argument, if we're looking at it 100 feet above sea, 100,000 feet above sea level, if it's as fundamental as if you are uh, an adult and you're able to get up off your duff and go to work, that just doesn't really encapsulate every single different part that's working. Now, and you've heard me as regular listeners to the program say this millions of times. What we do is we talk about things after the fact. You know, we're now trying to deal with an issue or a crisis that has been growing right in front of us. This is not new. The conversation is not new. The issue uh, and the concerns regarding housing are not new. But what we don't do is do enough to get people where they are and to help them with whatever ails them and to help give them better access to mental health services, short-term, medium-term, long-term. We have done a poor job in this province with attending to people's addictions and some of the work that can be done on the educational awareness front to try to reduce the number of people who are, you know, it's one thing to be smoking pot, quite another to be on meth. So we don't really do enough until it's not too late, but it's at the end of the, uh, end of the game. People have already find themselves in the death spiral of addictions, have already found themselves with a lack of support and mental health and consequently it's deteriorated to the point where it's a long difficult tricky road back and then it's the concept of wanting help and needing help versus forcing help on people so i'm not making excuses for anyone because i don't know anybody down there i don't know what their life choices have been i have no earthly idea but i don't think it's as fundamental as if you just pick up your pull up your bootstraps and go to work and all of a sudden we think everything's settled i'm not so sure it's as easy as that you know, and then we talk about the numbers of people on social assistance. The number in the province is about 22,000. Are some of those 22,000 abusing it? A hundred percent. There are people that are abusing that system. So there's a lot to these conversations, and your opinion is welcome on the show, Twitter, email, or otherwise. All right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.